Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show. I think this is the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these, but I can't be sure because it's been so long since we did one of these. Yeah, it is December. The last time we did one, it was not yet Halloween. Yeah, I don't even remember your name. I don't know who you are. <laughs> well, we did. We've, we have seen one another since. What's going on? We've What's done going other on? episodes, just not movie journals. Uh, by the way, I'm David. I'm Tyler. And let's get started. Yeah, we got uh, a lot to get to. Yeah, we got we got no time uh, for fussing and fighting, my friend. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm going to start with a film that I saw that uh, was on, excuse me, it's on, on uh, Netflix. It came out uh, over the summer, and I'd just been meaning to get to it. I hadn't gotten around to it. My, uh, my wife... Um, Natalie and I uh, had a lazy uh, Saturday or Sunday afternoon at home mm-hmm. and decided to watch a movie called Tallulah. That um, sounds familiar. Yes, it stars uh, Ellen Page and Allison Janney. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, Ellen Page, uh, basically the premise is she's a sort of a transient type, lives out of her van, and she has a boyfriend, um, and they sort of split up. And she goes to New York City to try. Be, she doesn't know where he is, but she knows she mm-hmm. has his mom's address. She tries to go uh, um, meet up with his mom through a series of uh, events that um, are not worth getting into. She ends up sort of kidnapping a baby and then showing up at uh, his mom's house uh, pretending that this is her baby with uh, Jenny's son. And so she and the mom develop a sort of friendship I guess Um, but it's based on this lie that this kidnapped baby is Alice and Jenny's granddaughter yeah um but it is a really really good uh little movie i oh, okay. it's been six weeks whatever five weeks yeah. since i've seen it so i can't go into too much i like it's not fresh in my mind at this, this inter- point there's this amorphous uh good quality in your mind right now associated with Tallulah, <laughs> and that's all you have yeah uh because it's more you know like the best movies it's not you know i uh that the plot that i just laid out for you could be um, kind of, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, overcooked if done wrong. Yeah. But, um, this is a movie about the, the characters. There are th- really, it's a movie about three women. It's about Ellen Page, about Alice and Janney, and it's about the actual mother of the, ta- of the, oh, of okay. the, of the kidnapped kid, um, who, who plays a big part in, in the movie as well. Um, and, uh, it, it's yeah it's it's a movie that's about uh relationships and and um basically it's you know this isn't necessarily exactly what the movie's about but it's a, one of the things that i found interesting about it uh that i tend to find interesting about life i guess is that it shows how two people who couldn't be more dissimilar eventually come to find in common ground just because they end up spending a lot of time together and so mm-hmm. alan page and alice and jenny sort of are good influences on one another and you know become i guess you could say friends uh even though they couldn't be more different right <clears throat> um yeah and it's got a whole a whole bunch of other stuff that i haven't gone into around around the edges about uh, alice and jenny's uh divorce from her husband is a big part of the of the plot and um uh, I haven't gone into detail on who the mother of the child is, which is a very juicy character. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a character movie. Uh, okay. and, um, uh, I, I, I rather enjoyed it. All right. So as an, as an indication of how long it's been since we did one of these, my first one here is, uh, Scott Derrickson's Dr. Strange. Okay. Which Let's we have not it. talked about. Cause before. That, that'll knock one of mine out. Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, 
At this point, listeners, you've seen it, if you're interested in seeing it. Um, I I went in with cautious optimism because I have started to not necessarily turn on the Marvel Universe, but there's something It's just like, okay, I know what I'm getting. But I was kind of excited that like, all right, they brought in a, a director who primarily works in a very different genre to make... Cause I know a little bit about Dr. Strange, the character. I know that he just operates on this whole other plane. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, this, this could have some interesting visuals and that sort of thing. And sure enough, uh, it certainly does. And some of those visuals are, you know, everyone's been talking about like the collapsing city, which is fine. But to me, the, the weird little, uh, blast through the universe, uh, moment where you have like, uh, finger hands and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, that's the work of of a horror director and because it's creepy and it's uh i don't know uh, a little odd and yeah, i don't yeah. know it's and so i really liked that um i liked the main performance because i was worried that it's just like all right this guy's gonna just be another tony stark but by but he has a real arc he might have the strongest arc of any marvel character so far like he's very that's, different at the end than he is at the beginning that's very much what i uh what I uh, very much a part of what I what I liked about yeah. it, and I do. Without going into spoilers, you've seen it, but uh, I like that at the end he outsmarts the yeah, villain. That's another thing. Yeah, boy, oh boy, going back all the way to the okay. This is only the sixth Marvel movie I've seen out of what thirty two. Something many like there are. that. Um, uh, but going all the way back to the first one, Iron Man. My problem with it, I think it's like two thirds of a good movie, and then it has a shitty third act because it all comes down to two cartoons clobbering each other. Yeah, and so many of the Marvel movies have been have been like that. Um, but uh, I liked this because, yeah, it's 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 clever and it's unique to the character, yeah. uh, and it's similar to why I liked Ant Man so much that it's like a, a you know it's a heist movie um, by the end, uh, and I, I but. Um, what I want to get into more is that I think this might be the strongest thematic sure. Marvel movie. And I'm not talking about the character, because there is the thing about the character, about him, like, um, like I, on the one hand, I think this is interesting. On the other hand, I think the movie spells it out too much. The idea that he, I think um, the ancient one actually says, um, you're not driven by a desire for success. You're driven by a fear of failure. Yes. And I think that's, it's a little bit too spelled out. Um, but that's interesting. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the thematic thing, uh, which is so much against, um, what we tend to think of as the superhero, like paradigm where they're sort of, um, almost, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, correlations made between superheroes and fascism that they're basically like, sure. um, enforcing their opinion of what's right through force, which is theoretically what civil war should have been about and briefly was for about <laughs> two seconds. And then they dropped it. Um, uh, I didn't see that one. I guess I, uh, dodged a bullet there. It's unfortunate. Um, uh, but, uh, this one, this, I, this, this theme, the idea that in order to maintain good, you have to have a little of the bat. Like yeah. the idea that the ancient one has to compromise herself a little bit yeah. in order to, because if she's too sealed off from the evil, then she yeah. has none of its strength and has no understanding of it and is vulnerable. Right. And, and that's why the, you know, there is Dormammu is a huge, you know, you're talking about who outsmarts the villain. Yeah. Um, but 
Dormammu isn't really the villain of the movie. Right. I was reluctant to even use that term. He's, he is, uh, an evil force, but yeah. Um, the primary villain is Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. And the primary villain in the, in a thematic sense is, um, what's what I'm looking for? Um, uh, there's a word that Dr. Strange uses, um, to, to refer to his father, the Mads Mikkelsen. He's, what they call themselves something like fanatics, yeah. but it's not fanatics. Yeah. It's, uh, zealots. Is zealots. Zealots? Yes. Yeah. zealots. So it's the, 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 the villain here is, um, yeah. Fanaticism, dogmatism, yeah. uh, zealousness, um, Z- zeal, uh, zeal, I guess. <laughs> and that, uh, again, we're assuming you've seen the movie, yeah. um, that carries through to the post credits scene yeah. where we set up, which I thought was pretty solid. Yeah, that was where we set up the villain for the next one, which is this, the same thing that, that, uh, the, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll dance around it, but the person who's a villain becomes a villain because yeah. he becomes essentially a different kind of zealot than Mads Mikkelsen's character was. Yeah. And so that's, that's what he's battling is the, um, he's, he's battling the inability to compromise. And that's something I find really interesting thematically for a super superhero movie. Well, and, and in the end he ultimately is compromising, uh, in, uh, Sort of in that way, to go back to the theme of the character, the idea of, of success versus failure and his attitude towards each one of them is that, uh, and this this film was so solid in regards to the character that it actually cast, for me, the other Marvel characters in a different light. And, and it made me understand them a little bit more because there at the end, it's showing him being willing to basically embrace the ways in which he is broken so that he can actually do something good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Tony Stark does. That's what, uh, that's what Bruce Banner does. Uh, that's kind of what Thor does. Um, as far as just, um, you know, his whole thing was, okay, I'm going to be the ruler of Asgard and that's fine. But then his arrogance caused him to be, you know, cast out and now he embraces, uh, he still goes back and forth, but he embraces being here as well. Like this is not a punishment to him anymore. It's part of who he is. And and it took Doctor Strange for me to realize that it's like, yeah, the best superheroes are the ones that aren't necessarily fleeing from the their flaws, but acknowledge that it's part of who they are mm-hmm. and they incorporate yeah. that into themselves. And so and yeah, and I will say that, you know, the post credit scene is not that surprising if you know the comic books, because when oh, you're right. just like like, oh, that guy is uh Doctor Strange's uh, arch villain. What's he doing uh being buddies with him for a while. Um, and what's interesting is, is they took, they switched out characters because the character that Mads Mikkelsen is in the comics, that's actually like everything about him is actually this other character mm. as far as motivation and stuff. It's, it's very strange, but I, yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, we can move on. I, I actually do want to say one more thing about okay. it. Um, cause another thing that, um, especially uh, recently there's been a lot of talk, um, about, Marvel movies being ugly. Yeah. Um, and that's because the, yeah, there was a, I don't know, some, there was a, an article. I can't remember where it was. Um, but, uh, but our friend, um, Scott has pointed out the lack yeah. of visual style. And, um, this is a movie that has, uh, I'm not saying it has great flair in terms of cinematography, but in terms of visual ideas, it sets them up and then actually follows through. I mean, this is something we were talking about with, um, with Asterios. Uh, sorry to keep going back to Ant-Man, but I actually really like Ant-Man. I guess um, so. Yeah. But yeah, I, I talked about the idea of when he's running across the, the lawn of the model mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's, that's a cool, interesting idea. 
uh, vision, like visually that is actually followed through on. Yeah. And here with Dr. Strange, we have a couple of, of those that are cool. Like the, 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 the room that has the windows into different parts of the world that he mm-hmm. like, that's great. Throws the woman out into the desert and then changes it. So she's stuck there. Yeah. That's cool. But it, then especially the final battle, which takes place as time is running backwards is something that is like, it's like, okay, you set this up, follow through on it. And yeah. they do. It's really cool. It's great. That part, you know, had we been talking about this three or four weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, I, that would be something I would have led with. Um, the idea that because it's in many ways, it's a standard action scene, which is we are fighting in the midst of chaos. We're, fi- we're fighting in the midst of things falling apart, but no, we're fighting in the midst of things, putting themselves back together, which can be equally, if not more treacherous, and, which and is it, fascinating. It also dodges another bullet that a lot of superhero movies fall into, which is like having to come up with reasons why no civilians are hurt. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like having to like either move it to some weirdly abandoned locale yeah. or just like, um, you know, uh, just not acknowledge it. Like the, yeah. uh, as much as I like the Avengers, like, Clearly, a lot of people must have died there, but you yeah. don't really acknowledge it. But here, people actually do get killed um, and do get like impaled and crushed, and yeah. innocent people get killed. But then time runs backwards, so they get yeah. so it's a it like it's it's able to have its cake and eat it too in a way yeah. that works. Yeah, All right, it's really effective. And and uh, I'll say this: if you haven't seen it yet, um, see it in three D. It's a good use of three no, D. I didn't. I didn't see it in three D. Um, unfortunately, I guess I don't know. I don't know if that's unfortunate. In this case, I think so. It's it. I, I'm not a big advocate for 3D unless I feel like the filmmaker uses it well, and I think Scott Derrickson really uses okay. it well. Uh, well. We spent a long time on Doctor Strange, but luckily we won't spend a long time on this next movie. It's called Trolls. Um, oh yeah, all right. Uh, here's what I'll say about it. It's bad. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because you and I saw the same footage at Comic-Con this year, which looked dreadful. Yeah. But then I remember talking about, like, in our Comic-Con episode, talking about, because you were late, like, talking about, I was like, oh, the best part was that little, like, musical montage journey. And you Mm -hmm. were like, oh, I missed that. And that's, that kind of holds through, through the entire movie, the movie itself and the story and everything that has to do with the story and the plot uh, is really lame and stupid. And the song's, themselves are not exactly it's a jukebox musical and not exactly inspired choices but the song sequences when the movie sets aside its plot and it's just sort of like these weird vignettes of um kind of outlandish uh music videos essentially mm-hmm. uh those are those are in, engaging each one is different from the other and they're uh um interesting and innovative and it's like i could just watch i hope like if the if the DVD comes out and people don't still buy DVDs, but um, <clears throat> if it had the ability uh, to just like to choose a, a selection on the menu, like just watch musical numbers, rent the DVD and do that. Cause that's, those are the only good parts of the movie. Maybe uh, somebody could do an editing uh, uh, exercise where they just cut out all the story. Yeah. All, all right. right. What's next? Next for me, David is a little film called symbiopsychotaxoplasm. Oh, I've never seen this part. Uh, sorry. Take one. Um, this thing is, I'm going to say genius. Okay. It is absolutely amazing. If you are a film fan, seek it out. If you're a fan of art, seek it out. Um, it's hard to even explain what it is. It's everything and nothing, David. Um, this, uh, filmmaker, William Greaves, uh, has been, is just, he has this scene of dialogue between these two characters, a husband and wife, and uh, the husband uh, 
it's maybe has gotten involved in like a like a like a gay affair or something like that and so there's a lot of elements going on between this argument that's happening in a park okay so he ha- he has this scene and then he goes through it with uh various actors who will some will improvise at one point he tells them okay can you sing it um and then okay so that's that's me explaining it in the in the most plain terms Mm -hmm. but then we will also have uh sort of a documentary about this experiment uh we will often cut back to the crew all sitting in a room together talking about whether or not this experiment is completely misguided but as they do so they start to think wait a second i think we're part of the experiment right now and maybe this is brilliant but i'm not really sure uh does the director actually want the crew members talking about how bad his film is <laughs> it's fascinating and it is basically he just like he is looking for life wherever he can find it if he can find it in the what the actors are giving him great if he can find it in what the actors are doing between takes great if he can find it in the in the crew great if he can find it in the cop who asks him uh for his permit uh <laughs> it's it is all over the place in the best possible way it deconstructs what filmmaking is what storytelling is um and and I could even say what art is like. Why people strive for it is it is art itself by its very nature self indulgent, and is that a bad thing? There's a lot going on in this film, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay. Um, next up for me is a movie that you have seen. Uh, I finally caught up with the Coen Brothers. Hail Caesar. Hey, all right. Um, I thought it was delightful. Yes. Um, I feel like it's. I don't know. It just it's one of those Coen Brothers movies that people are like not getting. I think. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Um, well, I, I, I know we've talked about your your thoughts uh, on it, um, which I was I'd be interested to go over them again now that I've seen okay. it, but especially your thoughts as a person of faith, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's what the movie is about. But I, um, I don't think it's just about religious faith. No, not at all. It's yeah, it's a, it's about the idea of faith, the idea of having faith in something about dedicating yourself to. Uh, an idea or a belief. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I found it, um, really weirdly touching, yeah. um, by the end. Um, and, uh, it's also, uh, very funny and very handsome to look at. Yeah. Um, did you watch the trailer for, for it? Like since you saw the movie, did you watch the trailer since the, tra- uh, since the movie? No, I don't think I have actually. It does. Because I have a tendency to, I don't watch trailers until I've seen a movie and then I'm eager to see, like, mm-hmm. how did they sell this thing? And it does the thing, the same thing the big short trailer did last year, which is try and trick the audience into thinking these famous people are all in the same room. Yeah. But because the movie is just Josh Brolin interacting with different characters one at a time for the most part. Yeah. But it cuts, di- there's different scenes where they're in his office and the trailer cuts it so it looks like he's talking to Alden Erickson and yeah. to Ray Fiennes and to Scarlett Johansson like at the same time like they're all in yeah. his office together. Uh, it's That was very funny to me. Yeah, it really is... Um you know, just sort of a day in the life of this guy. It's, it's an ensemble, but there's a specific lead. Like it is his film Mm -hmm. and just these little vignettes. And and that's very much the nature of the character's life. And it's just so delightful. I I find, I was talking about it uh, today with a fellow student and, uh, because he had the misfortune of saying the word grandeur. 
uh-huh. which immediately sets me off because I think of Peter Jason, who was in uh, Deadwood as uh, the director of Hail Caesar. And he's like, squint, squint against the grandeur. <laughs> and he just, and they got to have somebody with like that gruff voice. That's who that was. He yeah. was uh, Con Stapleton. That's him. On, on Deadwood. Yeah. And, uh, and it is, it is, uh, I know he was in what's it Tetro or whatever uh, Scott is always talking about, Um, (laughs) but uh, they won't shut the fuck up about. Uh, But I love uh, that Scott's just like at this point just a specter that hangs over the episodes whether he's on it or not. Oh, he looms like oh we got to address what Scott would say here. Uh, But uh, this is probably this is uh, my first. interaction with uh, Alden Ehrenreich and I think he is marvelous as uh, Hobie Doyle um, and just winds up being it's strange that a character that is as humble and like down home as him in the midst of all these over the top characters that he would kind of steal the show but he does uh, yeah. for me anyway uh, I liked and then we'll move on uh, I liked that it's a movie that I think on the surface could be described as oh it's an old Hollywood satire but I don't think it is at all because even though it kind of maybe pokes fun a little bit at old movies or at the way the studio system uh, worked and the and like it gives you the definitely from the opening scene it gives you uh, you know when he goes to stop that woman from taking you know sort of uh, suggestive pictures you know because yeah. she's under contract it gives you the impression like oh this is going to be a look at the CD side of the studio system yeah. Um, but I think that's something the Coens do a lot, like start the movies, start their movies, uh, making you think they're going to be something else than what they yeah. are. Um, because it's, uh, eventually you realize that there's not really an antagonist in the movie. Like everyone in the movie is a pretty decent person to one extent or another. Um, uh, they're, they're a little, uh, they're all a little bit flawed, I would say. Um, um, like, yeah, every, but everyone's flawed. Sure. Um, I, I don't think, I, I guess the Coens, I think sort of, uh, unfairly, but repeatedly have been accused of not liking their characters. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't see that. And I definitely don't see that. I, I don't see that in really any of their movies. I think they, um, I think they do like their characters quite a bit. Um, even in a serious man, which I avoid, I avoided watching for a long time. I think that's the closest thing because come. I was afraid that I, that it would be that, but it's not. But um, you're right; everyone in the movie is flawed, but everyone is human, and I think the movie loves them in a way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, in talking with my uh, my uh, fellow student today. Um, I had mentioned that this is a film that treats film and movies uh, the way Mike Lee treats his characters, which is I love them but I love them too much to uh, look at them through rose colored glasses. Like this is a love Uh letter to film and the people that make film while also understanding a lot of these people (laughs) are kind of broken. Um, if, if there is an antagonist of any kind it's probably the guy from Lockheed. Um, and even he is just limited in his thinking and and judgmental. And he's more of a, I mean, he, he represents an idea. He's not really a character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, all right. What's next for you? Next for me is Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea. Okay. Another one I've seen, yeah. although it has been a very long time. It's been almost a year since I saw it now. feels like it's been a long time since I saw it. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, from what I understand, you saw a different cut than I did. Um, that that's what I've some, heard. Some cuts were made. Uh, well, this, uh, this one works pretty well. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I haven't heard many people complaining. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's great. I mean, I, it's weird. I feel like. I feel like I have a hard time talking about it just as I did with 
Margaret. Uh, mm-hmm. there's just something about the movies that he makes where it's just like, I feel like this is beyond me as a person. I could talk about the story. I could talk about the characters and the filmmaking, but it feels like even to talk about all of them is to miss the point. Yeah. Um, it's because his movies are like, uh, no one's going to tell you to squint against the grandeur yeah. in his movies, <laughs> yet they are grand. Do you yeah, know what I mean? There's, there's, and, and, but it's they're grand in a way that is somewhat ineffable, and so to to try and talk about it is to minimize it. Once, yeah. once you try to say like, "Oh, I can," I'm going to approach the the movie from this point of view, um, then you're already minimizing the movie to that point of view. Yeah, it's it feels like it just it's it's very elusive, which is strange because these are characters that live in our reality. They're dealing with feelings that many of us have had having relate, you know, dealing with relationships that many of us have had. And so like, it's all recognizable and the characters, you know, to go back to Deadwood, like in Deadwood, they often seem to be speaking in some kind of code. Uh Nobody's speaking in code in Manchester by the sea. Everyone's just saying, just talking the way people do. Yeah. And yet within that, he finds a real, I don't know, uh, not even necessarily ethereal, but just, uh, I'll just stick with elusive, this very elusive quality, just this meditation about g- not merely guilt, but you know, uh, I'll stick with guilt cause that's, that's a big one. And, but the idea of, you know, guilt is a, uh, a, a pet theme of mine. Cause it's, as it turns out, it's a thing I feel constantly. Um, and there have been movies that talk about, you know, the, the destructive quality, uh, the destructive nature of guilt. And what I like about this film is that, you know, there are so many characters and this, this happens with him a lot in the three films that I've seen, uh, mm-hmm. characters who know what the right thing is. They might even want to do the right thing, but for reasons of their own, they can't let themselves do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just very frustrating and it's just it's all spelled out for people uh, for for the characters it's all spelled out for us for them we know we all know what the right course of action is mm-hmm. but they can't and you know you you wind up getting frustrated with them but then f- you know for me i find myself thinking at the end well wait a second where are the where are the aspects in my own life where it's very obvious what i should do or wh- how i should be acting but i'm not because of because i won't let myself or or anything like that and it's you know that's and he's a guy who definitely loves his characters and we'll see them uh clear-eyed and it's just a it's a marvelous film. It's wonderful performances all around, but right and left performances and characters that subvert your expectation. Everything about this movie within the first probably 40 minutes, you're like, I think I got this. I think I know what the arc's going to be. And then he manages to go, you know, zig when you think he's going to zag and, you know, uh, really paints a portrait that is so darker, so much darker than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of, you know, as a turn, because, you know, the, the, the story that we know about is, oh, uh, Casey Affleck loses his brother and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, the extent to which he has lost people and the extent to which he is responsible for that loss runs so much deeper, uh, yeah. than just this. Um, and it turns out that's what actually this is more about than the loss even of yeah. his brother. 
Uh, I also uh, want to say that Kenneth Lonigan, um I think because he's he was a playwright first and, mm. and a screenwriter, he's sort of put in that camp. I think maybe sometimes people fail to um, acknowledge um, the visual power of his of his uh, uh, films because there's there's a couple of of shots. There, it's unassuming his his style. Maybe yeah. that's why you know he's not Zack Snyder. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but there are like, you know, the, um, the shot of the flashback of Casey Affleck and young, his young nephew on the boat that yeah. Kyle Chandler's driving is, it's a beautiful shot in and of itself. But also when you think about the shot as the movie goes on yeah. and the movie returns to that shot, uh, it becomes kind of, yeah. uh, really, really touching. And then there's, I won't say what I mentioned this back way back in our Sundance episode. There is, um, a, there's a, a, a moment in the. I guess the lobby of a police station that 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 image it happened so quickly and is over so quickly but it, yeah. like, it had I saw this movie in January at eight o'clock in the morning um, and that image has not left me I think about it yeah. uh, every couple of weeks I think since then yeah it's definitely in there to stay because it's so fast and so matter of fact it's this is how that would have happened if it happened that uh, you know. If, if you were to see this happen in real life, that's what it would look like. Mm-hmm. And then that scene is so imprinted on your brain that you also come to realize like, oh, he's kind of been living that moment out for the rest mm-hmm. of his life. Yeah. Like, it's really fascinating. All right. Well, before we say too much, we should move yeah. on. Uh, I saw a documentary that I um, I really want you to see, uh, Tyler, but I want, I want a lot of people to see it. Um, but, you know, just a word of warning, it's not... Um, an easy watch necessarily. It's called Gleason. It's a documentary about the um, former NFL star, uh, Steve Gleason, okay. uh, who developed Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and he uh, started a, a, a charity and, you know, has become, uh, even, even as his body is deteriorated to the point where he can't, you know, really talk and he has to use a Stephen Hawking type of wheelchair, mm-hmm. you know, um, to, and, and voice system to get around. Um, he's done a lot of great things for people with, with ALS. Um, but the documentary that you are thinking of based on what I just said, on the one hand, it totally is that it is that inspirational, like overcoming adversity or, or living with adversity and making the best out of it, um, type of documentary. It absolutely is that, but to its credit, um, the movie is, it's nearly two hours long. It's, which is longer than it would need to be if it were just that. Right. Um, it leaves the, the clay tweel as the director and he, with the, with the, um, the Gleason's, uh, permission leaves in, um, just stuff you wouldn't, um, expect just some really raw stuff. And I don't mean there's like physically raw stuff, much like in life itself when you, yeah. there's some of that stuff, but really what, what Gleason is at the end of it all, um, it's not a movie about, it's not a, uh, inspirational disease movie it's not a movie about als or about football uh it's a portrait of a marriage Hmm. um and i found that uh so touching like they're they're his um uh his wife um um michelle i think is her name it's been a long long time since i saw the movie now um like they are they are on the one hand they are so perfect for each other like you get the impression that he wouldn't have done the things that he did and and become 
you know, uh, been able to survive as much as he has without her. But also the movie doesn't shy away from the toll it takes. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the most heartbreaking part of the movie isn't any of the physical stuff that he's over, uh, like trying to overcome. It's the part when they're not really talking. He can't talk. He like has to type to talk and she's so worn out by taking care of him and their kid and helping run the, 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 the foundation, um, that she's not, he's trying to confront her with his voice. Like, um, you know, like, I'm sorry, you're upset. I, you know, I need to, um, uh, I need you to help me be close to my son because I can't physically get there myself. And she's like hearing him, but can't bring herself to like, give him the apology that he and we as the audience want in that moment because she's so run down. That's the hardest thing in the movie to watch. It's a, it's a terrific movie about marriage. Doesn't that, doesn't that terrify you that you would become that guy? Nothing against him. Obviously it's not his fault, right? But that you would be in that situation where, you know, your wife or, or any loved one just has to like take care of you and you literally have nothing you can give them back. Yeah. That is to me yeah. so terrifying. I feel like I don't give much now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I can, at, I can at least, you know, uh, do a couple of photos and get some money. Um, so, uh, yeah, that sounds very harrowing. And, yeah. It's, uh, it's really, really good. Maybe I'll watch it someday if I really want to bring myself down, but, but, I mean, but not, not really though. Cause it's I mean, also, I, I a, don't want to like give a spoiler, but it is a positive movie about marriage. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it knows, and this is something you and I have talked about in all sorts of stuff. And you've talked about in, uh, the way that Christian films present their ideas. Like it knows that the positive will have more impact yeah. when it's, uh, juxtaposed with the negative. And then when, when you're honest about how bad things can get, we'll get to that in about 17 movies. So don't worry. <laughs> oh God. Okay. okay. What's next for you? Next for me, I watched the, uh, the, the two part animated, extravaganza Batman the Dark Knight Returns okay. which is a, a, an adaptation of the Frank Miller uh, book and it is very very good and the, the reason that I watched it everything about it screamed hey watch this while you're working and I did problem solved because I watched The Killing Joke which was based on the Alan Moore thing uh, but then added 20 minutes in this definitely, they didn't need to add anything in. It's already feature length. It's fine. But I didn't like the killing joke. Um, and I do like this. And I think it's that I think Alan Moore is a better writer than, um, Frank, Miller. than Frank Miller, but I think Frank Miller just thinks in terms of film. Huh. He, he's, he didn't write this to be a film. He wrote this to be a comic, but I think he just, I think that influences influences him more. I think Alan Moore is probably more inherently literary. You know, well, I think it's. I mean, it's Alan Moore has made it clear himself that he's not writing for his things to be movies. For yeah. his things to be turned into into movies. He doesn't like that they are. He yeah, he doesn't watch them anymore. Yeah, um, and he yeah. shouldn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, like, but I don't know if you've ever read From Hell. It's. I did not. It's amazing, but it is not cinematic and it is nothing like the movie. Yeah. I read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and it's just like, this is great in this form and uh-huh. only this form. Um, although I actually think League of Extraordinary, Extraordinary Gentlemen would probably make like a good mini series where there's not an expectation of like action all the time. Mm. But, um, 
Yeah, uh, this works really well. It's and if you if you haven't read it, um, it's it's older, angry, cynical Batman. He's retired for a while, and Gotham has started to kind of go a very specific way. Um, and there's a gang that suddenly has power, and they're using it, and it's getting really violent. And he decides he wants to get back into it, and. Once he and then an interesting byproduct is that the Joker has been in an insane asylum, basically catatonic. But then once uh, and then just sitting in front of a TV, just staring at it, and then once Batman shows up on TV, he starts to come alive again because mm. uh, he now has this person he can respond to um, or react to, and so uh, really good animation based very much on. I don't know if you've seen stills from. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. from the, the comic, but this very big bulky square jawed Batman yeah. and he does fight Superman at one point and it's great. It's really, really effective. Um, and it works, it works really well. I've, uh, what I have seen of the DC animated, uh, universe and I've seen a fair amount of it. Uh, I've really liked it. And this, uh, is just, this is an argument against the killing joke. And again, like, and against the the idea of just pure adaptation, because in this case it worked, but it won't always work. Mm-hmm. You need to actually examine the source material and adapt it. Yeah, it's what bothers me about Watchmen is that they didn't actually adapt it. Yeah. So okay, all right. <clears throat> Moving on. I talked about Gleason being a very uh, positive movie about marriage. Um, this next movie is about more than marriage, but it's a very negative, very cynical movie. Uh, it's called Nocturnal Animals, directed oh, okay. by Tom Ford. Have you seen it yet? I've not. Um, uh, I think it's a really powerful and well-made movie. Um, my uh, Natalie and I had exactly the same thought when we left the movie, which was, I never need to watch that again. Okay. Like it's, it's really well done, but it's it's a, it's mean, the, this movie. It's about people being mean to each other. Um, and it's, I think, mean about how petty people can be. So but it's like a Neil LeBute film. <laughs> it is kind of like a very, like, yeah, artfully directed uh, Neil LeBute um, film. I don't know if you know what the story of the movie is. There's, I really don't. I've stayed in the dark about it. Do you want to know? Part. Yeah, sure. What the hell? Okay. So there's three stories, essentially, in the movie. Uh, Amy Adams plays a woman who um, is a gallery owner here in, like, art gallery owner here in Los Angeles. And she receives in the mail a transcript from her ex-husband, a manuscript, rather, of her ex-husband, who's a writer and has written a new novel. The novel is called Nocturnal Animals. Um, her husband, played by Army Hammer, is going out of town on business for the weekend, so she decides to spend the weekend reading the novel. Mm-hmm. So, the I guess you'd say the A story, I guess, is just Amy Adams reading a book. Okay. Um, she does go to work at one point and then come back, you know, um, and that's where we get Jenna Malone's character, who's terrific uh, at, at, at work. But um, the A story is really just Amy Adams reading a book, but it's, you know, uh, it's a very beautifully made movie, so that's not boring. Mm-hmm. Um, the B story is the story of the novel, which we see come okay. to life, where um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays the lead character, um, who's a man who is, um, he and his wife and daughter are, um, accosted and assaulted on, uh, uh, a, on the highway at night by three hillbillies. Um, the lead, the leader of the group played by Aaron Taylor Johnson. Oh, okay. Right? And then the third story is the flashback to 
Amy Adams' character and her ex-husband, also played by Jake Gyllenhaal, as they first like were dating and got married. Okay. So it's those three stories at once, uh, and it goes through to the end to the breakup of their of their marriage, which wasn't very long, from what I understand. Um, so it's those three stories at once, and um, I did have a fascinating conversation with uh, with Natalie, um, that's my wife, um, uh, on the on the drive home from the movie, mm-hmm. where it's uh, I think we both saw the same ingredients in the movie, but I think based on our own experiences and perspectives basically based on our genders we saw them in different proportions Mm. i'd saw it being very much about a man who feels that his that he's been emasculated by his Mm ex-wife and that this book is some like measure of revenge or Mm -hmm. or something that he's taking on her um and now he was like uh well i see that but i think it's more about this character, Amy Adams, because we see uh, her mother is played by Laura Linney, and we and uh, we she's my, my my wife was saying, I think it's about this woman coming to grips with the fact that she's become everything she said she wouldn't be when she was young and idealistic <laughs> and in college, and I, and like we're both saying, yeah, those are both parts of the movie, but I saw it much more as about this guy's masculinity and she yeah. thought much more about this woman's compromised dreams. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. It's a really well-made movie. I would definitely recommend seeing it. Um, and, uh, I haven't mentioned Michael Shannon who only, gonna he's ask, only yeah. in the novel part of it. Okay. Um, but he's, uh, terrific. He's the best part uh, of the movie, maybe in terms of just uh, pure performance, but it's a really, uh, really well-made movie. I recommend seeing it. Um, it's not gonna, be i don't know if it's a great date movie <laughs> like it's not gonna you're not gonna leave like so this is gonna be one of those things this is how i described gone girl is that like it's a wonderful film that ruined my weekend it made me want to <laughs> like hug my wife and say i'm sorry yeah even though i didn't do anything yeah um all right yeah it's that sounds it sounds great i think i'm going to uh, watch in despair <laughs> um okay so i watched uh, michael mann's black hat um, oh, have you seen it? No, I, uh, I know a lot of the uh, people who are into Michael Mann, which I tend to be one of. And me too. Um, seem to really like this movie. Uh, it didn't yeah. do well in the box office. Yeah, not at all. Um, but neither did Public Enemies, right? And right. Public Enemies did, and that was one of my favorite movies of that year. I wonder if just the nature of what makes money has just passed Michael Mann by. Hmm. I mean, because he makes movies with stars. Yeah, you know. Uh, that are kind of a draw, but I think just the way he makes movies and just his sensibilities just don't fit with what people want anymore. Like the idea, this is not a reflection of the film itself, but you know, I, when I think of Michael Mann, I think of like slick Uh nineties and that was a while ago now. Um, but black hat is definitely Michael Mann in top form. It's a story that I don't care about (laughs) characters. I don't care much about, but the actors all do a great job and I'm invested, but just the way that he puts movies together, I just respond to, uh, and maybe because I grew up, uh, watching movies in the nineties, but you know, I would say that this is sort of a, a minor Michael Mann, but that's just as far as like general, like the stature of the film, as far as, you know, his abilities, he's in, you know, peak, form you know this is the michael manniest of michael mann films in many ways uh and that's a good thing and it very much put me in the mood to watch more of his movies which we'll get to later on oh fun 
but if you if you if you like Michael Mann, seek it out. It's great. It is a great movie. I, I feel like I haven't been positive enough about it. It is a really great, engaging movie. Okay. Uh, you know what's not a great, engaging movie? What's that? Is uh, The Birth of a Nation, the, the new one. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I, I, don't, I just don't get it. Like, it was... <laughs> It was such a bad, like I left Sundance, you know, it was my first Sundance. I left it being like, oh, I'm so bummed. I didn't get to see the birth of the nation, birth of the nation. It's the one everyone's talking about that in Manchester. And I saw Manchester, but like, it was like, it's one everyone's talking about it. And it took me the better part of a year to finally get to, to see it. Um, and it's just flat. Yeah. It's a snooze. There's, I don't understand it. <laughs> like it's, it's not, um, I kind of expected, um, I might've said this already. Um, no, I, I don't think I know if I said this on, on the podcast. Um, cause I saw it November 9th, the day after the election. Oh. And I was like, well, maybe at least it'll be a little cathartic for me to see a bunch of racists get killed. Um, and even on that most base uh, level, it doesn't deliver. Yeah. It's, it takes yeah, so to throw long. in Django unchained and, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that'll do it. Um, that'll make me feel better. Um, but like it takes forever building to what you know, it's going to build to and doing it in the most dull way where there's nothing. There's no, we, you know, we talked about the characters in hail Caesar and all the characters in movies. We like being flawed. There's no flaws to, yeah. to Nat Turner in this movie. We're just seeing him become more and more galvanized by the, um, awful things that he's seeing. Yeah. Um, and, we also see him become a preacher, but I don't think the movie actually, it shows how he uses the Bible. You haven't seen it yet, right? No, not okay, yet. So it shows how he uses the Bible to, uh, and this is maybe a little clever to say he's using scripture to say things to slaves in front of their owners that right. only they are understanding the way, like the way he means it, only the slaves are understanding yeah. what he's saying. And that's a little clever, but I don't think the movie actually follows through in any way on him being a person of faith. I don't think that's yeah. really a part of the, of the movie. Um, and then, yeah. And then once the, once the, like, uh, the, the, the revolt, the, the uprising happens, it's, um, not particularly interesting, uh, except for there's, there's one part where, uh, a, um, uh, what do you call like an overseer, I guess on a plantation sure. or whatever. Um, he gets like his head caved in with an, a hatchet, like Richard Jenkins in, uh, in burn after reading. And then for good measure, he gets decapitated. And I was like, this is what I was coming to the movie yeah. for. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's just, it's just dry. Uh, and, and then it's over. That's, that's all I've been hearing. I mean, from, from everybody at school, from critics I know, from you, like, I mean, I've heard people say... I'm a critic, you know. Huh? I, 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 fell, in that, I fell in that second category. Yeah, I know, I'm but a critic, sorry, you know. uh, but you're... <laughs> I'm a critic, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, and but here's what everyone says, and I've uh, let me run this by you, what you think of this. Everybody I know that has seen the film said, it's really not very good, but you should see it anyway. I don't know. And that's the thing is just like, yeah, that's, that's culture talking. And that's what this film was meant to be talking. Right. You know what I mean? Right. That's the, the promise of Sundance last year was, Oh my gosh, watch this thing. And then everyone did. 
And then he said, oh, it's really not worth worth watching. But we all gave a shit about it at some point. So uh, uh, based on that, you should watch it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The main reason that it came up at Sundance, we know, was uh, that that was Sundance was between the Oscar nominations and the Oscars. So the, yeah. the, the whiteness, the second year in a row of all white acting nominees yeah. was very much on people's minds. So the idea, here's a big obvious Oscar, Oscar type movie yeah. um, with a number of notable black performances by black actors. Um, and, uh, and angry. There's an anger to yeah. it that kind of spoke to the time as well. Yes. But there's a movie coming up here that we'll talk about that I think um, fits the bill much much better and i hope that uh yeah we've got three movies now that aren't that uh that could get some oscar praise in fact probably all of them will oh uh, which, which one are you talking about that we've have we talked about any of them yet no okay you got your moonlight uh-huh you got your fences uh-huh you got your loving okay uh movies that deal uh with with race and have yeah. a number of uh black performers and and in some cases uh you know black directors and like the oscars have they'll be fine they don't need <laughs> birth of a nation. And hopefully this won't be a one year thing where we have like a, we quickly like oh, I, a bunch of black people and then go, whoo, glad that's over. With. Uh, <laughs> I, I absolutely think it could happen. You think that's what's going to happen? <laughs> We're just like, um, okay, we got, it's very much a, what have you done for us lately? You know? Mm-hmm. So how about this? It'll be two years on two years off. So <laughs> it could be this year and next year to cover for the last two uh, years. And then it's back to business. Let's hope that's not true. But uh, yeah, all those movies you mentioned, um, moonlight fences and, uh, loving, mm-hmm. um, I've only seen one of them. I'll talk about it later, but neither none of those are the ones that one that I was talking about. Oh, okay. So we'll get to that later. Okay. What's next for you? Next for me, that's a good question. Uh, ah, shit. All right. Uh oh. Vincent Minnelli's Gigi. Okay. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I've I've not. Okay. I've uh, why I've would seen you? Seen a handful of Vincent Minnelli movies, but not that one. I saw Meet Me in Saint Louis uh, for school, and it was a delight. Gigi. Did he make the long, long trailer? Did he direct that? That sounds familiar to me. Yes. Uh, cause I looked him up shortly after seeing this and I think I saw that in the, in his credits there. I've seen that one. That's a fun um, movie. Yeah. I'm not blaming him, uh, on this movie being such a, such a whiff. Um, <laughs> it has some moments here and there, but it really, it is notable because Maurice, uh, Chevalier is in it. Uh, the song, thank heaven for little girls is how the film <laughs> starts. You know, that creepy ass song. <laughs> Um, once that, once that is over, Oh, he also made Brigadoon. Sorry. Oh, okay. Which I have never seen. Um, once that scene is over, the film then embarks on a really long and laborious, unmemorable love story that in many ways reminded me of my fair lady, which would win best picture a few years later. Um, and it's one of those things because I've been, I watched this, you know, for, cause it won best picture and a bunch of other Oscars in 1958. And, uh, and because, uh, Josh and I have been going, uh, through the best pictures backwards. I watched my fair lady before I saw this and so in my mind that that's the film that came out first, even though obviously it didn't. Um, but it's a good example of something that happens to me every once in a while. There's a movie I won't like other people kind of like it, but I don't really like it. And then a movie, a few years later, a movie will come out that is similar, but much worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, you know, wait. 
No, lay, lay it out. Okay. Just... I didn't like Titanic until I saw Pearl Harbor. I didn't really like Gladiator until I saw Kingdom of Heaven. And I didn't really like My Fair Lady until I saw Gigi. Um, even though, again, like I know I watch them in reverse order, but uh, it is astonishing to find a musical with virtually no memorable songs. There's that one that it starts off with. After that, it's nothing. I don't remember anything. You know, there are songs I remember. There are songs I knew from uh, like Oliver because I saw that for the first time somewhat recently. Yeah. There are songs I knew from Oliver not knowing they were from Oliver. Like that's how much some of those songs have permeated the culture. Like which ones? Consider uh, Yourself? Yes. That was that was a big one. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, this one is just a, who cares? I mean, there's some good stuff about it, obviously. It's a, very lavish and, you know, some great dark direction. And the acting is fine, but who gives a shit? So this thing is just nothing. What's better? Gigi or Geely? Which one's the better movie? Which one would you rather watch again? <laughs> we watched Geely together. Yeah, remember? I know. With our with Cole, our old roommate, I think. Yeah. Here's the thing. I when I remember Geely, I don't remember it as being that bad because I remember Christopher Walken okay. and Al Pacino. That's a horrible movie. But because I remember those two genuinely interesting and good things, I'm gonna say I oh, hang on. I was about to say, I'd rather watch Geely. Can I just kill myself <laughs> instead? I'm waiting for the inevitable. Like, any time something has been bad long enough, there will eventually be the people who come along and, like, sure. the revision of people will say, no, it was actually it was actually good. And sometimes they're right. Um, but I'm I'm dreading the, the generation of um, film snob contrarians who tries to rediscover Geely because it is... It is just objectionably, it's terrible. Do you know why it won't? Why? Because it's a comedy that's not funny. Oh. If you have a drama that is funny, uh-huh. but it's not trying to be, that will get picked back up. Okay. But a comedy that isn't funny will be dropped and stay dropped. And I can't think of one. Well, but every, see, I've never seen Ishtar. Everybody, Ishtar's reputation for a long time was it's a bomb. It's one of the worst comedies ever made. Yeah. But now you've got people who um, really defend Ishtar. Uh, and so that's what I'm wondering. Will, will, will Geely one day be like, do they actually defend it or do they like ironically defend? No, they, people actually defend Ishtar. I mean, don't get me wrong. My mom loved it. Uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) my Um, hipster mom just loves Ishtar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe they'll come back around on Geely, but there's a, there's a whole monologue that Jennifer Lopez has while she's like stretching and doing yoga. Do you remember how bad that is? Yes. Oh my God. It's such a bad movie. I remember there's a scene where Ben Affleck is like trying to like, like pump himself up in the mirror and he keeps talking about like, like, you know, mess with the bull. You get the horns and he's like, it's all like a very, very sexual thing that he's like kind of revving himself up to Uh like go get with this woman. And as I was watching, like I feel embarrassed (laughs) for him. I feel bad for Ben oh, Affleck. Man. Oh man. All right. Okay. Let's move moving on. on, please. Okay. There are three movies this year that are comedies about old Hollywood that I think, uh, people generally didn't fall in love with. We okay. talked about Hail Caesar. We won't talk about rules. Don't apply. Cause we talked about an AFI yeah. movie. Um, and those are both underrated. 
Okay. Those are both good movies that people need to wake up and smell the coffee. The third one of these movies is getting just about the right amount, like amount of respect that it deserves, and that's Woody Allen's Cafe Society. Oh, okay. It's, um, I mean, Vittorio Storaro shot it. It's beautiful to sure. look at. It's great clothes. Um, there's a handful of great, you know, Woody Allen lines uh, in it, but um, it's just nothing much at all. I, I told you this um, off mic uh, uh, last week, but um, I have... I have two lists that I keep of all the movies I watch over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. One is chronologically. That's what I'm looking at now. When we do the movie journal, I'm looking at the chronological list. Um, and then the other one is movies that released that year that I saw ranked. And I sometimes switch them around a little bit. Um, but generally I put stuff as I see it. I, I rank it uh, over the course of the year. Cafe society <laughs> represents the exact, not the, not the median, Right. Mm-hmm. But the exact center point in terms of everything above Cafe Society on the list, I'm more positive than negative on. Right. Everything below it, I'm more negative than positive on. Cafe Society, I, I, it's like I, I am very neutral. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it really is like, it, it is two movies in a way. Um, uh, in the sense that the first half takes place in Los Angeles and there's a jump in time and moves back to, New York and the second half mostly takes place hmm. there. Um, and, uh, the second half is way better. Um, unsurprisingly, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, for a Woody Allen movie, the part that takes place in New York is going to be better than the part that takes place <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles. He like, I'm not, I don't know what things cost, but like, if you're making a movie like cafe society, that's this has this much in terms of the clothes and the costumes, the cars and like, clearly there was some money behind it. Right. right. There's a part where Steve Carell's character is on, uh, is in uh, the back of his, the backyard of his Hollywood Hills home. And over his shoulder at one point, you can clearly see downtown, like yeah. the U S bank building and stuff, which is built in the late 1980s or something, uh, you know, is down there. And it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know what things cost now, but you didn't have enough money to have that removed. Like, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> right. Um, it, it just, it just feels like he, he didn't, it, it feels like Woody Allen didn't care about the Los Angeles parts. Cause he probably yeah. had to come here to shoot it and that's not, not going to make him happy. Yeah. Uh, so he was probably like, no, let's just get out of here. Uh, I don't care. Um, and then he gets back to the other part. That's a, a little better, but, um, yeah, it's, it's nothing special. There's a lot of great little, little parts. Uh, Corey Stoll plays, uh, Jesse okay. older brother. Um, I'm, I think I'm pretty much alone in being a big Blake Lively fan, but I've always been a big Blake Lively fan. Well, you like the shallows. I like the shallows so, and she's really good in it. Yeah. So she's the, the second love interest. And the hey, New York if, love interest. if you are a Blake Lively fan, you should see the shallows cause she's in it a lot. Yeah. I guess that's what I understand. So, all right, uh, moving on. All right. So, uh, next up is the best picture winner of 1959, which is William Wyler's Ben Hur. Um, which I oh, see. This I is why saw you saw two fewer movies than me because yeah. you watched a four-hour movie. Yeah, I just finished it a few minutes ago, uh, having started it uh, in mid-November. I, sta- I started it when we did our right after we did our last movie <laughs> journal. Um, yeah, so uh, so I hadn't seen it for a very long time since high school, and I remembered very little of it. Obviously, I remember the Chariot Race, but um, this movie's really good. Yeah, yeah. And it has 
you know, we make jokes about how long it is and it is long, but it has a lot of forward momentum. Like I, and what's more is the length of the film allows Weiler to really explore, uh, the implications of certain scenes. Like there's a scene where, uh, uh, Judah Ben-Hur is, um, on this Roman, uh, ship, uh, like a warship. And he's like one of the rowers, you know? And there's a guy sitting there who like drums and that lets everyone know the pace at which they need to row. And then Jack Hawkins, who is super awesome. And I always like to see him in a film. He shows up and he decides he's going to test out and he's a a Roman, uh, like general or something. And, uh, he decides he's going to test out these guys. And so he just kept, he just says faster, faster, and just goes faster and faster the scene is probably about five full minutes long and it's just five minutes of rowing. Mm-hmm. No real dialogue, just him saying faster and just drums and these guys rowing. And like, I don't even remember, I don't remember if there's really any music, but if there is, I seem to recall it being fairly minimal. It's just showing the, the, the callousness of Rome and just what these well, slaves have to go through. Can I, can I, well, actually here? Sure. <laughs> For a second. Cause yeah, I know in the novel and every, all the movies, he is a slave, mm-hmm. uh, galley rower, but apparently there were cultures that did that, but Roman rowers were not slaves. They were, oh, okay. uh, paid soldiers or paid members of the military. I read, I read that after the new Ben Hur came out. I was uh, <laughs> watching this kind of made me curious up to a point about the new Ben Hur. Um, and I think, you know what? And I, I don't love Charlton Heston as an actor, but, and you can, I, we, you know, we did our mini soda about this. And so this is, I'm just repeating myself, but I don't love Charlton Heston as an actor, but in the right role. And you wouldn't think a period film would be the right role, but what you need is just like, Hey, we've got four hours built around one character. Basically we need someone who can be a big enough actor to carry it. Yeah. And he carries it and I've, he does really yeah. well with it. I've always been a Charlton Heston fan. And, uh, and I'll say this, like when I was a kid, not a kid, but when I was in high school and I saw the chariot race, I was like, Oh, that's really impressive. You watch it now. And it's like, Holy shit. That's a full on chariot race. They <laughs> did. They did an actual right. chariot race. And I have to assume. And the fact that it's all there, it, they are all in the same physical space as each, as each other, all these horses and there's no music. It's all just these hooves and people screaming. Um, and it's, it's just a, a marvel to behold. If this film, if it were shown in, in town, like at the Egyptian, I might go see it. I would sacrifice my whole day oh, yeah, that would be. to see this thing on the big screen. Let me ask you this. Cause you saw the new one, correct? No, I saw Timur Beckman Batov's, Ben Hur, yes. <laughs> you just say the new one. It's fine. It <laughs> saves us a lot of time. It took it took as long to say that as it did to watch the original. Um, so, uh, well, there was a silent purge. Well, actually, I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep mansplaining to you about the history of Ben Hur. Is it mansplaining when you're saying it to another guy? Uh, I think if you try hard enough. Okay. <laughs> I think I think you could just say I'm gonna I'm gonna backsplain something, yeah, there we go. Uh, which is particularly obnoxious. Um, what is the the chariot race for the new one? I have to assume that there's a lot of CGI yeah. because just for animal cruelty purposes, yeah, I have to yeah. assume. And while obviously I don't want any, and I think people got hurt in the original chariot race, Warriors like in the filming. Um, so obviously I don't want anybody to get hurt, uh, human or animal, but at the same time, I have to assume the spectacle aspect of it does suffer. Well, I've never seen the original. Okay. But, um, and the one, the Beckman version is not 
it's not bad. It, yeah, it's uh, it's competent. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Is it um, worth seeing? Not really. Okay. Um, I will say this about uh, Charlton Heston. Okay. Because I'm always I've always been a big fan. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's been a long, long time since I've mentioned it. Um, obviously, his politics were not my politics, mm-hmm. but I've always been a fan of him. And one of my favorite stories about him was when they were making uh, Major Dundee, which is a Sam Peckinpah movie, mm-hmm. uh, when Sam Peckinpah was kind of being Sam Peckinpah, and the financers wanted to fire him from the movie, and Charlton Heston, who was playing Major Dundee and was yeah. the star and the reason the movie was getting bankrolled to begin with, yeah. he said, if Sam Peckinpah is gone, I'm gone. And yeah. he like, saved Sam Peckinpah's job. Uh, that's fantastic to me. And you know, like his, that's the thing, he did have politics that, I, that even I wasn't a huge fan of, but at the same time, he was a big civil rights guy. Um, he's the one that got Orson Welles. Except he was, a, yeah, he was one that still jobs from Mexicans <laughs> and touched people, <laughs> right? <laughs> he got cast, you know, but at the same time, uh, he got cast and, and Wells was cast as the villain, as the, the heavy, as they say, uh, mm-hmm. in more ways than one. Uh-huh. Um, and it was Charlton Heston who said, why don't you just have him direct it? Uh-huh. And they said, okay, Mr. Heston, absolutely. And, and we got one of the best movies of all time as a result. So he yeah. has, he had like really good instincts in a lot of ways. Yeah. I feel like he's in some ways he couldn't be a more different actor, but he's very similar to Tom Cruise in that sense that he's like a big movie star who you get the impression actually cares about the movies being good. Like, I, think I don't that's think he, true. Like, I don't think like, I know Tom Cruise is very good looking and everything and plays, you know, uh, you know, strong action heroes and stuff, but I don't think of him as a vain actor. And I don't think Charlton Heston was either. Yeah. I think first and foremost, they want the movie they're in to be good. Uh, and I find that commendable. Hmm. I think at this point, an argument could be made that Tom Cruise is a vain actor just because like his age. And obviously he looks great for his age, but he does pick projects where it's like, I'm going to show people that I am not going to be limited by my age. Here I am shirtless yeah. in mission impossible five. And look, I'm going to do that. I'm going to climb up this pole this do way. Do you think that's what it is? Maybe. Cause I, um, I've the, the narrative I've come up with for why Tom Cruise has only done action movies for the past almost 10 mm-hmm. years now is that he had a stake in United artists and they made Valkyrie, which did okay. Yeah. And they made Lions for Lambs, which was a bomb. And then that there was the sign, the, the couch jumping thing and his like right. sort of stake was, uh, you know, dissolved. And, um, I feel like he was kind of wounded by being, by his, his triad being a, like a producer of quote unquote serious movies right. fell apart. And I think he retreated back to some where we're, he feels safe. And that's, uh, where, that's action movies. That's feasible. Um, that's the narrative I've written. I don't know. I think it's, I feel bad. I don't like calling people vain, especially when she's like, yeah, what vain or, or not. Carly Simon. <laughs> he thinks this podcast is about him. I'll tell you that. Uh, but, um, you know, I can, I can, even if he is, even if he is like as vain as can be, uh, he still delivers, you know, like, if he wants to do, if he wants to do a scene with his shirt off, uh-huh. go right ahead. Cause you know what? He, he worked really hard to look yeah, as good as he good did. Scene with his shirt so, off. Exactly. All right. Um, is it me next? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. So here's something I was talking about the okay. based on a true story about, uh, African uh, inspirational movie about African Americans. Oh, right. Um, that's actually a really good movie and is also really positive and inspirational and that's hidden figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at this point where, you know, I talked about birth of a nation and when I saw it and like, um, 
you know, I was in, I'm still not, you know, over the fact that Donald Trump is going to be the 45th president of the United States. Right. <laughs> uh, I haven't moved on, um, dot org there, but, um, <laughs> at this point we're still talking about within the first couple weeks of this happening. And I was in a mood, I was in a funk and I needed something to break me out of it. And hidden figures did it for a time mm-hmm. at least, you know, uh, because it is a rousing inspirational movie. Um, that's not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie about people who are knocking down barriers, but the movie itself in terms of, you know, uh, form and style isn't knocking down any barriers. Mm-hmm. barriers. It's a conventional movie, but there's nothing wrong with that when a movie is, um, is very well made, well acted, well written. Um, and that's, uh, that's what you've got here. If you don't know what the movie is about, uh, it's true. The true story of, um, just some of the African American women who worked for NASA and, um, were, uh, instrumental parts of the, of the team in getting NASA, uh, first into space and eventually to the moon. The movie doesn't go to that part. The mm-hmm. movie is mostly, um, the, the climax is John Glenn's, you know, actually orbiting the earth. That's, mm-hmm. that's what the movie is building up to. Um, and you've got, um, uh, Taraji P. Hansen, uh, Janelle Monet and, um, Octavia Spencer is that mm-hmm. uh, as, the, as the three leads. Um, and then, um, it also, and I think, uh, I, it, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm walking a fine line here. Um, cause I think, when the movie depicts racism, I think the it makes strong choices in that we do see some like people protesting segregation. We do see some really outright some some white people who are really outright racist. But <laughs> in most of in most of the ways that we see racism from white people, it's not necessarily aggressive, uh, aggressive or even conscience conscious it's like it's it's in, institutional um and it, you see characters like um jim parsons character or kirsten dunn's character who wouldn't think of themselves as racist and right. aren't necessarily saying anything that you can point a figure to and say that's a racist thing yeah. but it's you can tell it's under the under the service and then you've got characters like kevin costner <clears throat> who's terrific uh, another actor that i always like i'm always happy when kevin costner's in a movie mm-hmm. um where he's um he sort of repre- represents at least a, he has the um you know white guy revelations as the movie goes on but he at first represents just sort of the privilege of you know he's i, I don't think his character is even thinking about like the 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 fact that Taraji Piansen's character has it harder than everyone else that works under him. Yeah. Um, and it's because he has the privilege to not notice that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so you get some sort of awakenings there. And I, I know I'm talking about it very much from the white point of view, but that's because I'm a white person. Yeah. Um, and um, I do think it's, I do think it's important for white people to see that racism isn't just, you know, flag burning or you know shouting go back to africa or like no. it's not just these overt acts of racism racism is something that is um ingrained and institutionalized and that we should maybe just always be on the lookout for how it might have affected how we think or how we act 
um, and how maybe we can uh, uh, address that, be aware of it. And I wonder if looking at it from the, from a different a different angle, having not seen the film, but that idea of like on one side, it's racism is an ingrained thing. So even if you mean well, the way in which you mean well could be seen as racist or could be misconstrued, you know. Um, but at the same time, like looking at it, I don't know, it's, it's yeah, again, two white guys here, so I'm not going to tell somebody who isn't uh, how they should take it. But this idea of like recognizing aggressive, full-on, awful racism, like as opposed to an ingrained, but for lack of a better term, benevolent racism, obviously racism of all kind of all kinds needs to be gone. But at the same time, like I, I've read a number of uh, very histrionic articles at uh, BuzzFeed and uh-huh. uh, Huffington Post and all that. And it basically equates the two as though they are the same. And it's like, there is a difference. Uh, they might, I don't think they do equal. I don't think, I don't think they do equal damage. I think they both do damage, but I think that there's, if there's, if there's a situation where it's like, Oh, somebody is like Kevin Costner. It's like, he's privileged and doesn't realize it. Uh, and I'm sure when the day when the day comes and he realizes it's like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? Or, you know, as opposed to, I don't want these women working here. Right. It's like the two are different. And in, in the effort, in the effort to get away from one, uh, to get away from any, any concept of racism in, in like, if it's me saying it, it's like, no, I'm not racist. See, like, look, even Kevin Costner is like a total asshole in this movie. (laughs) Look how much it's like, no, he's a perfectly reasonable person who just hasn't thought of something, you know, and I say this having not seen the film, I'm just using it as an example. But I think, yeah, you're right. They are different, but they do both come from a place of ignorance. Sure. Um, and that's why we now have the concept of being woke. That's what being woke is about. I'm so pro that word. Somebody suggested you should start the woke cast to sort of counter uh, more than one lesson. Uh, I don't think that would be a counter counterbalance. I'll, I would do my best to make sure it was a counter. Um, so, okay. Uh, well, no, the counterbalance to more than one lesson would be just the one lesson. That's right? true. It would be none. No, no lessons. lessons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So. Next up was a, f- a documentary called Smothered, which is about uh, the smothered. Baked potatoes. Not the way I eat them. I just like uh, butter and nothing else. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, not smothered in, uh, in butter. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, it is a documentary about the Smothers brothers, uh, Dickie and Tommy Smothers, and their... their uh, I guess it wasn't necessarily short-lived. It went on for a few years. Uh, the Smothers Brothers uh, Comedy Hour in the 1960s. And their dynamic was a pretty standard one, which was, you know, uh, Tommy was the goofy guy and Dickie was the straight man. Uh, but within that, they managed to tackle a lot of political stuff, specifically um, the war in Vietnam. And people did realize it, but because these guys were they were young and they both wore suits and they just seemed so upright and, and mm-hmm. just goofy. And one had like a, a cello and one had a guitar. Um, and they would sing little songs and it was just kind of adorable, but really subversive. And in the meantime, in the writer's room, you had Steve Martin, Rob Reiner, uh, Carl Gottlieb, who would go on to write a number of things, including jaws. Huh. Um, uh, uh, 
Bob Einstein, uh, oh. Super Dave. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so it was just, it's a really interesting documentary um, because you kind of get to know who they are as, as uh, comedians, but then also the stuff they had to put up with from CBS uh, and wanting to shut them up and the amount of the, the relationship between, you know, the corporate side of CBS and the, and politics and how that influenced the art that was being put out there. So it's an interesting documentary. It's nothing, it's nothing amazing. It seems very much just like, I think it was, it probably showed on TV, but we watched it in my, in, for one of my classes to, oh, as we were talking so about this isn't new. right no this is this is uh, several years old at this point okay moving on all right to a terrible movie terrible movie here we go seen. okay it's called sausage party yeah <laughs> uh, uh it's here's the thing because i remember i remember you talking about when you saw it i remember everything you didn't like about it and that's all there but that's not the main thing that bothered me the main thing that bothered me is that it's not funny it's not funny <laughs> i don't think i laughed at all there's I, I think if I if I laughed, it was like a, a laugh of appreciation at a couple of audacious moments. Okay, but that was it. Like, there's no. It's like yeah, cartoon swearing. Yeah, you know, South Park's uh, twenty years old now. Yeah, well, twenty seasons anyway. The the best stuff in the movie is just the most sort of base stuff, which is the carnage. That's the stuff that I ended up yeah, being like. Love it. At least I can enjoy this like it's you know shocking and gross and like yeah although speaking of south park there's like a there's the saving private ryan thing which south yeah. park did better years, 10 ago. years ago yeah yeah um anyway uh but yeah it's a it was it was a bummer um uh but i made peace with the thing you were talking about how it's like uh i mean your complaint was that it's it's just a really superficial uh discussion about religion or whatever yeah, but here's the thing. I don't think it, here's why I was going to make peace with that. I don't think it's a discussion at all. I think the movie's a it's still superficial, but it's a polemic. Oh sure, because it's not it's not saying like it's a movie that is against religion, mm-hmm. and it's not um, trying to. It doesn't have any. I think it feigns sympathy for religious people, but it, what it really has is pity. Sure, um, and I think that's. Um, not something I, I can't blame people for no. feeling that way as a non-believer myself, but, um, it's not a particularly interesting, <laughs> um, thing to watch a 90 minute movie about, especially because, you know, as much as I don't like the movie religious, uh, there are a couple moments in it that, you know, kind of got to me a little bit as a, as a person of faith. Um, because just like, mm, that's a good point. I didn't think that with anything <laughs> with sausage party right. because you know, you say they're against, they're against religion. They're against their idea of religion and their idea is not thought through. And it is, uh, and that's the problem. Like I, I love uh, s- satiric comedy and I, mm-hmm. I'm fine with a polemic, but I feel like if you're going to tackle an issue, you should know a little bit more about the issue. Um, and the other thing that bothered me tremendously is like, have you looked up critical reviews of this movie? Uh, I think I did, but I'm mostly positive. Yeah. Boo hiss. <laughs> Come on people. And just, and the thing that I said in my little, uh, more than one lesson mini sewed 
was that uh, if I, I looked at some of the reviews and they said like, to like, oh, well, this is a film that like really, it's like they've got some things they want to say. It's like, yeah, so do fucking Fireproof. <laughs> and you require me to hate it because it's awful. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do, uh, Mr. Atheist, not you, because uh, you're already doing it. But uh, sorry to say Mr. Atheist, but like they, in a lot of these reviews, they say like, you know, I kind of what you're talking about, actually, a certain degree of pity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, towards uh, people of faith and just say like, Oh, and clearly these guys are don't have any sympathy for them either. And, uh, and I just had this thought of like, look, I know how exciting it can be. Cause I know that I, I have no doubt that like an atheist message in any movie is probably pretty rare. So anything that, that kind of meets you where you are, yeah, especially a movie that has that wider release. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so anything that meets you where you are is going to have a certain appeal, but that's the argument against Christian film as well. It's like, oh, th- this audience sees something that they don't get to see very often, mm-hmm. so they all embrace it. And it's like, no, 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 embrace a good version. You know, go yeah. and watch uh, uh, Life of Brian. I know it's been around a while, but watch that twice instead of Sausage Party once. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, what's next for you? Next for me? Oh my gosh, I I know that I should have anticipated. Oh, hey, okay. Here we go. I like that you're taking by surprise. I know. <laughs> like we, I like, we haven't changed up the format. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, okay, David. Uh, one of the things you and I have gotten a lot of flack for recently, okay. more than I'm comfortable with, oh. was our uh, our most uh, our our ignorance of uh, Barbara Stanwyck films. Oh, I'm comfortable with the amount of flack that we've gotten. Uh, no, I'm comfortable with it. I just don't like it. Uh, but I just we deserve it. I don't like being, uh, you know, um, an inferior critic. Yeah, uh, that's why we deserve it. Eh. You know, sometimes, look, this, you, every kid gets a trophy generation. <laughs> that's the problem with you guys. <laughs> Are you talking He's, to me? Yeah, you gotta toughen up a you. little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, you gotta use it as a... Uh, light a fire in your ass to go out there and see more Barbara Stanwyck movies, which I haven't done. But then again, if I recall correctly, I am one ahead of you on Uh, Barbara Stanwyck movies. Okay, so what do you Because I've seen The Bitter Tea of General Yen and Double Indemnity. Well, now I have seen... Now we are tied. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've got... uh, No, you know what? Here's the thing. Uh, Suggestions and suggestions like, oh my gosh, you guys would love this. That I can live with. Uh, as opposed to, oh, you haven't seen this? Oh, man, I'm disappointed. Fuck you. <laughs> no, I see what you're saying, because I, I, I try not to do that to people uh, yeah. either. And I, I have done it, and I always when feel bad When I was younger, afterwards. I think I did it. Yeah. But I think now I intentionally like try to check myself yeah. and try to like undersell a thing. If someone like, sure. says they hadn't seen something that's great, I'd always be like, oh, oh you'd, you'd like it. Yeah. That's all, I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, by the way, I realize, I feel like I've said fuck you a lot. Uh, and we're not in your life. I mean, during this episode and I've really been trying not to swear lately, but I guess I'll say this. I'm kind of, I'm in the midst of my last week of school and I'm really stressed and oh, okay. it, it's kind of yeah. coming through in the podcast. So I'm sorry, uh, anybody, if I, if I offended you, but, um, so I saw a wonderful film called baby face. Okay. Wait, what is oh, okay 1930s no. uh not exactly pre-code but made with pre-code sensibilities and then censored okay. but you can see both versions oh i saw the, what the i saw the uncensored version um on uh, amazon and okay. 
it's really interesting. It's it's part of this. I saw it as a function of of school. Um, there is this tradition in the 1930s called the fallen woman movies, and it's you know these. Uh, often dramatic, sometimes like thrillers, uh, not thrillers, but you know, um, the, the female equivalent of like gangster movies, basically mm-hmm. where, whereas like they don't necessarily commit violence. What they'll do is they will use their bodies to get what they want. So this is like a female version of the Paul Muni, uh, Howard Hawks Scarface where she sees what she wants and she just rather than kills people, she sleeps with people all the way to the top of this company. And, you know, obviously they're not going to show it, but there's like a lot of, you know, when, when you're a film fan and you like older films, you become very attuned to like coding uh-huh. and there's a lot of coding in this. And it's really, and when you know that, when you know what's considered acceptable and then you see this, you think, wow, that's really racy for what this is. Um, and she's marvelous in it. Um, you know, playing this woman who's, you know, using her feminine wiles and all that and not really hating herself. That's the other thing. That's, that's what was, uh, I love it. Inappropriate is that this is a thing she'd rather not be doing, but she'll do it. And because she sees the benefit, she's more than willing to do it and, and doesn't view it as, as wholly negative. Um, and it's, uh, and there are quotes. She's inspired by quotes from like Nietzsche. <laughs> like there's, and those that got cut out too, by the way, um, and replaced with something else. There's a lot going on in the movie, and she is she is really marvelous uh, in it as playing this kind of uh, not necessarily tough as nails, but not far from it. You know, I mean, it's Barbara Stanwyck, uh, who you know I know from Double Indemnity, and in Double Indemnity, she's very <laughs> tough, um, and it's very much that kind of sensibility. And I really, really like the movie, and I think you'd really love it. I'm sure I would because it sounds like a movie that I love and have talked about many times called The Damned Don't Cry, hmm. where Joan Crawford sleeps her way to the top of not a business but an organized crime syndicate. Oh, that sounds even more fun. <laughs> um, but also, you should read uh, Mick LaSalle's book, Complicated Women, which is about the female uh, stars of the pre code era. Nice. Yeah, good book. All right, next All right. for you. Um, oh, God, this movie is so bad. Okay. <laughs> um, right. I saw the new. Uh, Stephen Gagan or Gahan movie, I think. I'm uh, sure. Gagan, yeah, Gagan yeah. Gagan movie, Gold. And it That's is... That's interesting. A disaster, if you ask me. Because on Letterboxd, a couple friends of ours uh, gave it uh, good reviews. Um, huh. I mean, I can see... Uh, how do I not sound like a condescending asshole saying this? You know what? Go ahead. <laughs> I can see someone who doesn't watch as many movies as we watch... Um, liking this. Okay. But I, I feel like once you've seen enough movies, certain movies, you just, you see them coming. Okay. Uh, and there's just, um, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, here in, uh, in this movie, except for the fact that, and I, again, I can't remember if I said this on the podcast or not because I've said it to so many people so often. Um, but the Matthew McConaughey has gone around the bend. The, the McConaissance <laughs> has soured. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause we talked for some reason, we talked about free state of Jones on a recent podcast. I don't yeah. know why, but I despised that movie. Yeah. Uh, and largely because I thought he was so awful in it. He's so hammy. Um, and that's what he's doing here. He's got the, he's, 
Yeah, well, okay, we did talk about this because he's got like the crooked teeth in in. Right. He's gained weight. He's got like the the yeah. beer belly. He's got the really obvious like shaved his head back to make him look like he's balding. Yeah. Thing. Um, and I really just wanted to uh, Lawrence Olivier him and say like, why don't you just try acting? Uh, because because here's the thing is it's inspired by true events, mm-hmm. right? But they changed so much that the guy that he's playing isn't really yeah. the guy that it's based on. And also the guy that it is based on doesn't look like that. So it's completely, it's, we talked about vanity. This is a kind of like anti vanity. Yeah. Um, and I, I just hate it. He's just, he's just overdoing it so much. I feel, I feel so bad for, uh, um, yeah. Who's his co-star? Uh, Edgar Ramirez is the okay. his main co-star. Um, and then, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard plays his wife, um, and, uh, Corey Stoll and Bill Camp have sizable roles. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're be- Everyone, everyone is better than Matthew McConaughey. Macon Blair has a very small role. Um, that is a nice. very small role to the point where only people like you and me will go, Hey, that's Macon Blair. <laughs> <laughs> um, he doesn't really do much. Hey, I perked up when you said Bill Camp. I'm excited about that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, steer clear. Save your money. Do not you know, go see gold. It's so interesting, uh, and I'm sure that you experience this as well. Like, you know, I'll be seeing a movie, and then you know, trailers happen, and it's always nice when a trailer shows, and I just think, all right, one less thing to worry about. Because, <laughs> like, oh, Stephen. Because I had heard about, like, oh, Stephen Gagan made this film, Gold, with Matthew McConaughey. Maybe that's one to watch. And then I saw the trailer, and I know that trailers can't be judged you know you can't judge a movie based on that but yeah uh, when i saw this like all right <laughs> i know what i need to know yeah and uh this is this is just confirmation david all right yeah the you know the weinstein company is so known as like awards people yeah. but they don't really have much this year like i don't think lion is well received enough to like make it's a getting push. some stuff here and there they have gold. Um, I definitely know and hope that uh, people really embrace that adapted screenplay. Okay. Um, uh, and they have Sing Street, which is good, but not really an Oscar type movie, and also came out so long ago. Yeah. And they have their last, the last uh, arrow in their quiver, I guess, is the founder, which comes out. Uh, yeah, which really soon. doesn't have a lot of buzz on that um, in that regard. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I, I want to. I really want to get back on the John Lee Hancock train because sure he he came out of the gate with the Rookie and the Alamo, both great yeah. movies. Um, and then I didn't see The Blind Side. You despised it. Yes, um, I didn't like Saving Mr. Banks, but you did. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I did. So maybe he's on an upswing. Maybe the founder will be uh, a return to return to form. Well, it sounds like it because like, this is all about a guy who's not that good of a guy, which is the exact opposite of the blind side. Like right. I didn't like the blind side cause it's, it suffered so, so much from uh, Aaron Brockovich syndrome, which I've talked about on here. Right. Right. It's where everyone in the movie knows that they're in a movie. They're not the star of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, I guess I better accommodate her. She's clearly the lead. Um, okay. So I saw Mel Gibson's hacksaw Ridge. I am so curious but also so torn about because you and i like it it's interesting how i've changed over the course of the podcast sure opinions i used to have have changed a little bit because i used to be a very strong advocate of separating the art from the artist sure and i think as i've become more woke i realized that that's kind of a privileged position to be able to do that Mm -hmm. when nothing that mel gibson said to cops or to his wife um uh like 
was directed at me, so it's easier for me sure. to forgive. So it's a little harder for me to separate the art from the artist now. That said, I do tend to find his films really enjoyable, and Hacksaw Ridge is getting good reviews. Yeah. Um, so I'm torn. Like, I really want to see it, but I also don't want to pay to see it. My... <laughs> talk about a position of privilege. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, here's... Okay. My issue with it... I have a few. But my issue with it is one that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw to you in a moment. The movie is very good. Technically marvelous as one would expect. It's, you know, handles war really well. It is very bloody, but honestly, given the nature of the story being told, the bloodier the better. It's, it doesn't seem to glorify it because this is a guy, and you, I came away from these battle scenes thinking like, you know, frankly, seeing what I'm seeing, I don't know if I'd want to be responsible for this either mm-hmm. uh, because it's all about this guy who does not want to carry a gun carry a gun yeah. he doesn't want to shoot anybody he's just a, a medic um and so you really need to see the horrors of war i part of me thought like this was going to be a pg-13 movie no he absolutely shows everything and it is horrifying and it's it's really awful um but it's handled with his standard two-fisted uh, <laughs> uh directing style um that i think works he chooses he chooses his projects well for the type of director he is i'd say um this is no apocalypto but then what movie is <laughs> um performance is great all around andrew garfield the character might be a little bit too angelic uh, a little bit too perfect but um but the and what i like is that the the characters that oppose him in what he is doing are not monsters. They might do monstrous things, but they themselves don't want to. They are sympathetic to him, but they also recognize like I have a unit to run. And if we can't count on him, that's a problem. So please leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I sympathize with you. I know that you want to make a difference, but in your own way, but that's not good enough right now. We're at war. So get out of here. And, so there's a lot, there's a lot of good, uh, in the film. My, my biggest issue is one that is a, not even necessarily a moral, I'll say a philosophical one, which is, and boy, did I not find myself thinking I was going to have this, this, not even an objection, just more of a question. So this guy is, uh, not officially a conscientious objector because he doesn't object to the war and he doesn't object to being involved in the war. He just doesn't want to carry a gun because of his religious beliefs. And the film definitely puts that out there as this noble thing. And then he manages to achieve tremendous things. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe precisely because he's not carrying a gun because he's free to do these other things. But note what I just said. He's free to do these other things. And the reason he's free to do them is because the other guys are carrying guns. Mm -hmm. And I had this thought and I, you and I had this, had a conversation years ago and I put, and in the midst, it was a, it was a religious conversation and I won't go into the details of it, but I had made, uh, not even so much an argument, but an observation that I don't think I even realized at the time that I thought was true. Um, but apparently I do think this is true now okay. that if something is inherently good, you can take it to an illogical extreme and it would, it will remain good. Um, okay. and 
So the idea of, and if somebody has a personal conviction, then they clearly think that that is the right thing. And it's an inherently right thing. Um, but I guess there's a difference between personal conviction, but it's this idea of as you're watching it, it's like, man, good for Desmond Doss having these beliefs and sticking to them. Thank God nobody else does. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes right down to it, if you had a whole army of Desmond Dosses, you know, we're all speaking German right now, or I guess <laughs> on this side of the country, we're all speaking Japanese. Um, yeah, I, I, according I don't, to the man in the high castle. Yes. <laughs> oh, is that, oh, I've never seen it. Is it good? I just watched the, the first episode. It's, okay. it's intriguing. I've heard it. It's, it's interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, and obviously I'm being a little bit facetious, but like wars are won by people that like, there's different levels of heroism and we usually see the other kind. We see the people that kill a lot of people and, at great at great personal risk and his story is one that we don't see and that's really exciting about the film but i did have this thought coming out of it of like i'm i'm almost torn like for whatever reason i have a hard time seeing the gray area which is this is something that's good for him and only him and that's okay mm -hmm. i have a hard time looking at that because i there's a scene where he is re he's rescuing a guy who's who's like had his legs all shot up but the guy's still conscious. And so Andrew Garfield like puts him on this, on this mat and like, and like drags him along. So Andrew Garfield is running, is running and dragging this guy along behind him. And the guy is like shooting the gun behind him, like providing cover. And I thought like, yeah, you need both people for that. Mm -hmm. And you need a gun for that to work. And it's weird. I don't consider myself pro war. I don't consider myself pro gun necessarily. Um, but I came away from this film really feeling inspired in many ways, but also feeling like being just as thankful for the other guys mm -hmm. as I was for Desmond. And I'm not sure if that was the point. That's interesting. I so, want to see it even more now. Yeah. Listeners, I would like, I would love to know your opinion because, uh, I haven't really heard anybody else say this. All right. Um, I saw, I've been, uh, I, I love this movie, but I've been dreading getting to it cause I'm not sure what to say about it, but I saw Barry Jenkins moonlight. Oh, okay. Um, and it is a, um, uh, lovely and heartbreaking, um, lyrical movie, but I feel like it's, I mean, it is, I think a lot of people are talking about it in terms of it being lyrical and sort of poetic or whatever, but it's also very much a narrative. Uh, yeah. I mean, it takes place in three distinct chapters, each of which is, um, I don't know, roughly 10 years uh, apart. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the main character is played by three different characters. Um, and apparently the director it's, and it's kind of obvious the director intentionally didn't let them meet each other or see what each other were doing. Like, so the, the, you know, the things that are on the script are on the page are the same, yeah. but the performances are, uh, and they're not really cast to look that much like each other other than like they're all black men or yeah. boys at the beginning. And then the third one is a man. Um, uh, uh, and it's, it's an interesting choice. Um, and it does make you wonder if each one of them could stand alone as a short film. I, I wonder, I wonder if they could, um, the second one definitely could. The second one is probably my favorite. I think the, the high school, uh, one, but, uh, um, do you know what the, what it's, uh, about, uh, the, uh vaguely, um, okay. it's just this, this, uh, guy uh you know uh, and who's you know he's black and he's part of like a black community and he's struggling like dealing with like 
realizing that he is gay in a community that's not super open to that. That's pretty much what it is. Although the movie, I think because it takes on the subjective point of view of the character, um, other than in there, there is a character played by Mahershala, Mahershala Ali in the, in the first chapter who does actually talk like use the word gay and talk mm-hmm. about being, uh, or, or talk about the idea of his character's not gay, but he talks about the idea of being gay, uh, overtly. But then once he's gone, cause he's not in the, in the second two chapters, um, it's hard to even say like this character might be so closeted that it, he might end, like, he probably doesn't even think of himself right. as a gay man. Um, and I find, I think from a suggestion point of view, that's an interesting, way to make the movie to not take the outsider point of view where we're looking at him going well he's gay <laughs> right? right um because that doesn't help uh, like that's not yeah. um where where he's coming from the movie is more interested in being i'll use the word for like a fourth time subjective getting us inside um his head and realizing the um confusion and the anger and maybe the maybe the self-loathing that he's uh tamped down um but uh it's a really really beautiful movie um it takes place in miami i don't know why that's important i didn't know that when i went in yeah i didn't Um, is it modern day yeah okay yeah that's interesting yeah um i mean it takes place over 20 years so i guess yeah um it probably starts in the 90s i guess i don't know it's not clear about that and it's not really important um in my uh class today we watched a clip from brokeback mountain and i haven't seen that film since the theater um and it's very interesting um because I had completely forgotten this exchange, and it's it's uh, after Heath Ledger and, and Jake Gyllenhaal haven't seen each other for a while. They've both been married. One of them has been divor- is divorced by now, mm-hmm. and they are now on one of their uh, fishing trips, and they're sitting around a campfire and they're talking about like the women they have back home, and like you know. Jake Gyllenhaal is talking about how, you know, he's not really happy with his wife, but he's got this woman on the side and, uh-huh. you know, she's married and he feels like, ah, his husband's probably going to shoot me if he, if he <laughs> finds out. And, you know, and it's, and it very much feels like kind of standard guy uh-huh. banter and it's, they're not lying. And they both do seem to, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character especially does seem to take a certain degree of pleasure in having sex with women yeah and so but the nature and so i i'd say he's probably bisexual but that's the thing is like it's so much more it's like yeah it's more complex than that yeah definitely um and i think it in that case it is a a period film like it's it's it takes place you know decades ago but um and so this idea of like these guys they know what they want from each other and they know they, they care about each other it's not merely a physical thing um but if the, if you were to ask, like, are, are you interested in women? They would both say yes and be telling the truth. Yeah. It's I, very, it's very complex. I think if we, if humanity continues to exist long enough and, uh, president Trump doesn't wipe us all off the face <laughs> of the earth. Um, I think what we'll have, I, I think right now there's more, there's maybe more rigidity because, um, sexual identity is, uh, political thing mm-hmm. right now and so it has to like people have to stand they, they need to stand up for what they are and represent yeah. what they are but i think if we eventually get to a point where sexual identity isn't like such a hot button to- right. topic people can just be into what they're into eventually yeah. i think that's that's that seems like the goal to me so you say it's like a period piece like 
um, that's an old fashioned thing and it probably is, but I also think it's maybe where we're coming back to in a more, uh, in a, in a more relaxed way in the future. I hope. Well, and I think the, I think the film actually, um, is ahead of its time in that regard. Like that, that was not something that was being talked about in 2005. That's something that's being talked about now, but back then it really wasn't like, and, and that's, I think that speaks to the subjectivity that you're talking about is, is the ability of the directors and uh, the director and the writer to, um, and the actors to really understand like, no, you, you shouldn't play this character as, as gay, nor should you play this character as straight. You should just play this character as himself. And only he really knows what he is. And he might not even know. And then what he is might not even be super easy to define. Like it's very nebulous and yet still remarkably specific at the same time. Um, by the way, uh, there was a meme that was going around a while ago that I really enjoyed in regards to, uh, president like Trump. Um, and this was, this was back during the oh, primaries. We should say real quick, in our last real episode, we talked about uh, our last main episode. <laughs> These are real, too, I guess. <laughs> last main episode. Some people prefer them. Um, yeah. We talked about a thing that um, um, President-elect Trump had said about Fox News viewers, which turned out to be not, not, out to be, yeah. not true. Yeah. We, 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 got, we got hooked. We got roped in by fake news. Absolutely. Hashtag fake news. Um, so uh, there was this meme that said, it said, like, 2015 and and it says like trump's not going to get the republican nomination uh-huh. in 2016 it's like trump's not gonna win the presidency and then 2017 it's like trump's not going to get us into this war and then 2018 <laughs> it's like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna work for these talking apes am i <laughs> just, <laughs> so it was uh, quite delightful um okay yeah, and terrifying uh, uh yeah we are up next all right um Oh, okay. So this is another uh, film that I saw for class, but frankly, it's one I've been meaning to get to for years at this point. It's Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station. Um, Have you seen it? Yes, I did. Very good movie. uh, Great at times. And honestly, I was really worried going in that the character, that Michael B. Jordan's character was going to just, you know, I talked about angelic and perfect in uh, Hacksaw Ridge. I thought that like, given the nature of, of the story being told, like right. it is going to make this guy out to be, so you were afraid they might do something like have him save a wounded dog out of nowhere in the middle of the movie. Oh, something like that. <laughs> hey, look, I, I also think it's an amazing movie, but that is the part that I'm like, why is that in there? Yeah. Because at the same time, she's like, there's no witnesses. So this is pure conjecture. This is just <laughs> pure symbolism, you know? Um, and I was reading, yeah, something- it is, I guess it's in a, in a sense, him saving that dog is sort of, foreshadowing for when he's yeah wounded yeah yeah okay uh and i I was reading uh matt singer's uh review or at least his comments about the film on uh, letterboxd and he said that uh you know he watched it and was it was very effective and he watched it with his wife and uh and his wife said afterwards said it's like you know if that were if if that's actually well, and I feel bad because it's a true story, but at the same time, she said, like, if that were actually the last day of this guy's life, it is the last dayest type of uh, day one could ever have. And that's true, like, as as far as how it unfolds. It definitely is. It's a film being told knowing that we know the ending. Yeah. You know, um, there's an inevitability to it. We're all moving to, like, the first time somebody mentions the word Fruitvale, uh, just, which obviously is just a just right. a station yeah. uh on the uh, on the bart as they say um that's that's what they say that's what they say um 
And so, and I, I do kind of like that because, you know, um, why act like we don't know? We do know. That's why we're seeing the movie. Um, and I think the, you know, it, it all, it all comes down to the big scene where he does get shot. And what I like about it is that these cops are not seen as overly malicious. You just see them as like overwhelmed and they, and they overwhelmed and needing to exert authority. Mm-hmm. And being probably obviously overdoing it in some ways, but then also the officer that shoots him played by, I believe Chad, Michael Murray, uh, oh, is it? a guy whose name I don't remember when I learned and I don't know why I learned it. Well, from, uh, I'm looking at your DVD collection. You've <laughs> oh, got the full one tree Hill box set. That's him. <laughs> that's him. Uh, and so, um, it's right there between Nero Wolf. <laughs> In planet Earth. <laughs> exactly. I got it. Uh, anyway. So um, <laughs> when he when he pulls out his gun and shoots Michael B. Jordan, the look on his face is one of real surprise. And so I looked up the case afterwards, and uh, that guy did go to jail for manslaughter, saying that he got confused, pulled out what he thought was the taser, or, or stun gun or whatever it is mm-hmm. and shot it only to find he had grabbed his actual gun. And based on that, that's how he got a manslaughter charge instead of a murder charge. Um, and the film seems to buy that hmm. like based on that performance. And so it's just like, okay, that's interesting. It doesn't make this any less tragic. Right. Um, and Michael B. Jordan and Octavia Spencer's, oh, she's marvelous in it. It's just the... Oh, can I tell you my favorite line from Fruitvale Station? Okay. this is It's <laughs> weird that you're saying this with a smile on your face, but Because sure. it's a funny line. It's, okay. uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be an uncle or a friend of the family or whatever, but it's the guy telling Michael B. Jordan's character why he's going to be rooting for the Baltimore Ravens in the, in the playoffs. Okay. And it's because they got black uniforms, the coach is black, and he's got a black wife. <laughs> um yeah it's it really is a very effective film and one that has only sadly become more relevant since it was made um and yeah i just i I, and and it again it it manages to avoid aside from the scene that you're talking about which is still a well-done scene but maybe not totally necessary um with the dog with the dog not with the uncle who likes the ravens no that's absolutely necessary (laughs) you know as far as i can tell they came up with that scene and then built the rest of the movie (laughs) around it um but uh but yeah beyond that like it's just it manages to be so the opposite of what it could have been it could have been this pandering thing where like this character is just like you know too pure for this world is a a phrase I like to use when I'm being uh, pejorative. Um, But no, it's not that it is very straightforward and, and very honest. And I liked it quite a bit. All right. um, Moving on to the second uh, Werner Herzog documentary to be released this year. And I was not that big on lo and behold, his uh, cranky old man, anti-internet. Yeah. Uh, But I really enjoyed this one, which is called into the inferno. Oh, right. Uh, which is about volcanoes, but in true Werner Herzog fashion, there's huge stretches of the movies that movie that aren't about volcanoes uh, at all, because that's the thing it's, uh, so, and now I'm forgetting the guy's name. I think it's Mike Oppenheimer. The opening title card says a film by Werner Herzog. No, Clive Oppenheimer. That's his name. name. A film by Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. 
and then the next card says directed by Werner Herzog, just to make mm-hmm. it clear that, yeah, I still directed it, but um, co-crediting this guy um, in that he's, Clive Oppenheimer is the volcanologist that is uh, good friends with Werner Herzog, whom he met, Werner Herzog met him uh, on the continent of Antarctica when he was making encounters at the end of the world, because mm-hmm. uh, there's a volcano there, and they were down there studying it, and they met it, they met then and have become friends and the movie is basically just them going around to different volcanoes and talking to different, different people. Um, uh, and so one thing Clive Oppenheimer says when he, he, he talks about before he met Werner Herzog, when he knew, okay, the, uh, Werner Herzog, this documentarian, Tim, uh, documentarian is coming down. Um, and he and him and his team were like, all right, so they're probably going to want us to, you know, rappel down closer to the lava to get, different shots and he was like delighted to find that Werner Herzog wasn't interested in that sort of thing oh nice that he's more interested in uh, he didn't want just the spectacle he wanted to know about the science and he wanted to know about the people who study volcanoes yeah which I think is a very Werner Herzog type of uh, type of thing um, and so that's what this movie like I guess Werner Herzog documentaries are often only as good as the characters that he stumbles upon sure uh, and that's why you know as tragic as it is, Timothy Treadwell is a, was a character, and Grizzly Man yeah. uh, makes for a great movie because he's a fascinating character. Yeah, um, and this one's uh, it's it's much more. I would say it's more slight than Grizzly Man, certainly, but it definitely has that kind of fun. There's one part they're in. I can't remember where they are, but um, this is one of the tangents from Volcanoes itself. There's a um, a part of it. No, why can't I remember what country it's in? Anyway. There's a part a part of the world where a volcano exploded, you know, thousands of years ago, and it has the the um, so basically what I'm saying is we were essentially ex- uh, close to ex- we were an endangered species endangered species at one point mm-hmm. because of uh, volcanic activity, um, and so at one point Werner Herzog and uh, Clive Oppenheimer are just hanging out with this guy who he and his crew are digging up bones that are. I don't know, tens of thousands of years old. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know about the history of people, um, but uh, this guy is just a, like a, like a gregarious Southern good old boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's just a very Werner Herzog type of moment to have um, something as uh, in, you know, as as difficult to comprehend as the history of humanity and you know uh eons old ancestors bones um next to a just a a goofball mm-hmm. uh and uh yeah into the inferno is 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 full of stuff like that um i found it very uh very enjoyable uh, i felt like there was, when i watched it i was like oh there's something specifically i need to say about it but then it's been weeks now so I can't think of what it was, but mm-hmm. I did find out okay. that um, if you're standing on the edge of a volcano, right? Okay. And there's not an eruption, but just one of those, like the normal course of things. Sure. One of those explosions. Just a little lava splash. Yeah. So the pieces of lava fly way up in the air and your instinct is probably going to be to either duck or to run, but that's not what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is very calmly stay where you are and look up, just look up and 
see if one's coming down at you, then you need to step to one side or the other. But if you're ducking or running, you can't see it. So you're actually more likely to be hit by flying lava than if you just stay calm, look up, and step one foot to the right or left before this thing comes down. Now, David, I'm no <laughs> scientist, but I have my own... Uh, my own plan uh-huh. of how to avoid getting hit by lava. Yeah. It's pretty easy. Uh-huh. I, I think just, it's the same as mine. I just stay here. Yeah. <laughs> I, j- I don't leave uh, my house. But I also find out that the, the term that volcanologists use for those pieces of lava that go fly through the air, they call them bombs. <laughs> I find that funny. <laughs> oh, good. Um, all right. So next for me is a film that David, I think you would enjoy quite a bit. It is Stanley Donan's film two for the road. Okay. Uh, starring Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn. And wait, is that right? Yes. Um, I knew it was a Stanley. I forgot which one. But yeah, Stanley Donan. And it is a really interesting film uh, about this young couple who, I guess they're not that young. They've been married like 10 years. They have uh, a kid or two. It's not super obvious how many they have because you never see them. And the film basically goes back and forth in their relationship as far as time, like when they first meet and then 10 years later, now that they're now that he's very successful and they have a lot of money and they don't really like each other, but then various stops along the way. Um, and it just goes back and forth and it's really, I don't know. We, we, uh, watched it in class to talk about nonlinear editing, uh, nonlinear storytelling, pardon me. And this is one where by jumping around in time, it, it keeps, it keeps the the question in our mind Mm -hmm. of how could people who started so happily wind up where they are now, which is not in the happiest of places. And, you know, as as we go back and forth throughout the film, we we answer that question a little bit more and more. And then by the end, we have an answer. But I think it's understood that there is no the answer because it's just because it's just people. People mm-hmm. are like that. Um, and uh, these two are quite charming. Um, I I think I've come to the realization that I'm not a huge fan of Albert Finney. Um, in, in the right role, I think he's marvelous in Miller's crossing. I love him in murder on the Orient express. I love him in the dresser. Um, but I think there's just something about him as a young actor, especially maybe it's that he has the sensibilities of an older actor and that he, uh, I don't think he's necessarily overacts, but he's just very, there's a lot of bombast to the way he carries himself and because I recently saw Tom Jones as well, mm-hmm. and he's kind of like that in in there as well. And he's, it's not bad. It's not a bad performance, but it's just he has mannerisms or instincts that just for whatever reason, just I don't care for. And I feel bad saying that because he's still a good actor, and I'm still buying all the emotions that he's selling. But for whatever reason, it's just not my type of thing. And um, and that bums me out because I do like so many other. You know, but I was going to say I like so many of his other performances, but other, his other performances 
are outsized by their very nature when he plays, you know, Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express or the 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 actor in uh, the film The Dresser, those are big over the top characters and he's the right man for them. And I never saw Under the Volcano, um, you know, as opposed That's to Next to the Volcano, you know. <laughs> um and so uh yeah, it's um it's a re- and he's not bad in the film by any stretch. Uh, the two of them have a really nice rapport, but it's uh, I don't know. I feel it's it was a weird thing to come away from and be like, huh? I guess I'm just not too high on Albert Finney. Um, that reminds me. I was thinking recently. You know how you used to do uh, those fantasy casting things on the website? Yeah, I got to uh, get back to those. Yeah, those are fun. But I was thinking about a Miller's Crossing remake mm. because I was uh, two reasons. I was um, struck by the idea of make Miller's crossing now and cast Gabriel Byrne in the Albert Finney. Role, sure. Which would be cool. Um, but then also I've been watching a show we'll be talking about, uh, later with Aaliyah Shawcat. And I was like, Aaliyah Shawcat in the Marsha Gay Harden role would be awesome. Um, I think I can picture that. No, oh, well, I think it'd be awesome. But I haven't seen her in enough things to really, to really know. Yeah. Um, and then I'm trying to, I, I had done a whole bunch. I can't remember who else I had. I think I had, um, Michael Imperioli as Casper. Sure. Um, I think that would be, would be cool, but I can't remember who else, who else I had. Who would be, would you have like, uh, like a David Crumholtz as, uh, Bernie? Oh, you know who I had uh, as Bernie is BJ Novak. That's, oh, this is, this is interesting. Cause you're going very much, uh, you're going against type in a lot of cases. Cause I feel like Michael Imperioli, wonderful actor though he is, uh-huh. is so different than John Polito. Uh, well, he's a physical type, but I think yeah. he's good at playing characters of uh, less than average intelligence. That's true. Which I think is what you need there. You know what I think would be interesting as Casper? Jonah Hill. Now, and not merely because of body type or anything like that, but like when I think of Jonah Hill in something like, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, where he's not very smart, but there's an edge to him that's like, oh, this guy is dangerous. Um, and Casper never seemed super dangerous to me. And I think if you were to add an element of like unpredictability to the character, I think that would make him really freaky uh, yeah I, I wouldn't have thought of jonah hill because i think my mind was like it has to be an italian american right yeah but as we've learned but an italian american in the original uh plays a, a jewish character uh, right maybe that's why i picked bj novak because i was like who's a jewish actor yeah we can't uh you know you know what uh, somewhere we got to put cliff curtis in here because he plays everything <laughs> uh he'll yeah. be uh, the dane um yeah i haven't seen miller's crossing in forever Oh yeah. I got to um, rewatch that movie. I think the um I'm re- I'm remembering now the 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 long-term uh die-hard Buffy fan in me wanted to have James Marsters play the Dane who played Spike. Spike, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um anyway, <laughs> I do I do really like that idea of uh Gabriel Byrne cuz I cuz I'd say he's he probably has the right temperament as well. Mm-hmm. Um but they'd probably go with someone like Liam Neeson or something like that. Yeah. Um all right, uh, is it my turn? Uh yes. Okay. Two for uh, two for the road is very good by the way, okay. and I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. Okay. Um you know what's not good? What's that? Is the new Taylor Hackford film The Comedian. Uh, oh yeah. It's it's dreadful unfortunately. Okay. Um it's it's hard to watch at, at times. Um, it's embarrassing a lot of the time. Um, 
uh, Robert De Niro plays a stand-up comedian who's sort of a like a crass insult to- insult comic type who, uh, within the world of the film, had um, a sitcom in the late '80s, early '90s called Eddie's Home, and that's what he's like famous for. And he sort of hasn't had anything since then. And so the movie starts with him doing like a nostalgia bill at a like a, a comedy club in New Jersey with um, Jimmy J.J. Walker and Brett Butler, both playing themselves. Mm, okay. There's a lot of com- a lot of comedians played themselves yeah. in this movie, which is then weird when other comedians show up as characters like yeah. like there's a part where charles groden's in the movie is like oh charles groden it's like oh wait no okay he's so he's supposed to be a comedian right. who's not charles groden but billy crystal is supposed to be billy crystal it's hard to yeah that seems <laughs> and like cloris leachman's in it but not as cloris leachman but uh jim norton is jim norton um and nick DiPaolo is nick DiPaolo. uh but those actually the parts with the actual comedians playing themselves with the exception of billy crystal um who talk about like realizing you're not a fan of someone. I've come to realize that when Harry met Sally aside, I don't think I'm a Billy Crystal fan. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think you and I were talking about this. I don't, I don't mind him in, um, analyze this. I think he's pretty good in that. Um, uh, wait, do you think he's good in analyze this or analyze that? Why don't you shut up? <laughs> How about that? Um, I don't remember analyze this all that well. It's pretty good. The only part I remember that I liked was, um, when Billy Crystal tells, Robert De Niro, his dream and Robert De Niro, the only thing he takes away from him is that he was Fredo. Yeah. He's like, I'm not Fredo. Yeah. That's the part I like. Uh, the part I remember, I should say. I remember there is one, it's, it's a small, it's a small bit that, uh, I remember thinking was funny and then actually listening to the commentary with, uh, Harold Ramis and he pointed that out. I was like, Hey, I'm glad I caught that. And it's, uh, a moment with, uh, Joe, uh, Vitarelli, um, mm-hmm. who's like the short stout, uh, pockmarked guy who actually passed away shortly after that and he's okay. he's uh he's robert de niro's like right hand man and so you know all these dumb italian mobsters are just kind of sitting around and billy chris is like so what are you guys doing for the summer and, and they and joe literally goes about what <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that is a funny that's, line. That's a, you know. Yeah. Ah, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, all right. I'm back on board. Billy Crystal, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but that's not him. Oh, you're right. <laughs> okay. I'm back off. Okay. Um, but yeah, the comedian, uh, it's, there are, there are parts of it that are, that are good. Um, because Robert Tino, as much as we like, you know, I think, uh, chide him for, phoning it in for the past i don't know how many years um which doesn't count some of the he has done good work in recent yeah. years uh, he just also has done a bunch of uh, roles that are forgettable um he's still robert de niro like he can still uh command the screen he can still be good um and the uh i guess you'd say the the female lead i don't want to say for sure whether she's a romantic interest the movie goes back and forth on that, uh, is Leslie Mann, um, an actress of whom I've always been a big fan, yeah. actually. Uh, and their stuff together... You're is, a man fan. I am a man fan, yeah. Um, don't tell our friend Paul Goebel, though, um, <laughs> that, I've, that I'm team man. Um, anyway, uh, that's an inside joke, I guess. But people who listen to Paul's old podcast know yeah. that know that story very well. Um, anyway, uh, their scenes together are... Uh, are great. And it's a nice little like sweet, um, uh, friendship they have as a couple of fuck ups because he ends up in the opening scene. He beats up a member of the audience at the comedy club and has to do community service. And that's where he meets Leslie Mann, who, um, is doing community service because she threw something at her 
boyfriend when he she caught him cheating and missed him and hit the woman he was cheating with and broke her wrist. Oh, <laughs> so they're doing community service together at a soup kitchen. They meet, uh, and, um, he's like, uh, um, I need someone to go to my niece's wedding with me. And then she's like, my father's in town. I want to go out to dinner. I want someone to go with me. So they end up being each other's sort of plus ones. And then mm-hmm. they have a friendship out of that. That stuff's fine, but it's just f- like all around the edges is all this comedy stuff, which it should be more, it should be more right because Jeff Ross is one of the screenwriters. Okay. Um, yeah. And if that, I mean, if anyone knows the New York comedy scene, yeah. Jeffrey Ross has not left the New York comedy scene. Yeah. Uh, that's not true. I've seen him out here. Um, but, uh, it's, it's just, it feels like for as much as Jeff Ross might've been able to bring to it. Uh, and I said this in my review, it feels like Taylor Hackford and Arbor Nero have maybe never actually been to a comedy show. They, they're just missing the missing it and it, it almost and having hearing, not seen the film it feels almost as though like yeah if you surround him with other actual comics it's going to make him stand out more yeah and that's the, yeah like sorry um there's something is you could be the best actor in the world but there's something about being a stand-up comedian on stage that yeah. isn't exactly what acted like it's clear that robert de niro wouldn't know how to do this yeah without the cameras and the script and everything like it doesn't seem natural yeah it's you know and even even uh, especially like those old time comics which is seems to be what he's trying to be you know i mean if you watched don rickles or rodney dangerfield or whatever Mm -hmm. like do panel that's the thing if you're gonna play one of these guys you should watch these guys do panel like with johnny carson Uh where even though they're still doing their jokes it's amazing like how fast they are and just how comfortable they are with maybe not themselves but their persona if nothing else um well there's and then we'll move move on there's a perfect example what i'm talking about that um jackie burke the character Mm -hmm. has a thing in his stand-up that he does that's part of his bit where he will talk to the audience and then he'll do a thing where he puts his hand over his eyes and talks to himself okay and that's the sort of thing we've seen like jim gaffigan has that, that that voice of the audience type of thing like that's the thing you've seen comedians do. Um, but the transition into and out of it from Jim Gaffigan is seamless because yeah. he knows the stage every time Robert De Niro has to do this. This is what I'm talking about. Him not knowing the rhythms of standard comedy. Yeah. Everything comes to a complete halt. Every time he does, uh, he does this, it's, it's so awkward. And so yeah. like, how could he be a professional comedian and not like have this be a part of his act when he clearly doesn't know yeah. how to make it work. He's playing it like a one man show, not a comedian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's interesting. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Uh, <laughs> you remember Todd glass talking about every bad one man show starts with, Oh, I didn't see you. there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There we go. Let's okay. Let's, let's examine this a little bit. You just mentioned Todd glass. We've mentioned like Jeff Ross, uh-huh. Jim Gaffigan, Norton, Nick DiPaolo, I just mentioned Don Rickles and Rodney uh-huh. Dangerfield. Like, I would say, by and large, though when you though you and I have not really been actively involved in like the, the stand-up comedy scene for a while. Like we used to, yeah. But like we know stand-up. Uh-huh. And we can and we know both bad stand-up and fake stand-up when we see it. But I wonder if average Joe whoever uh who knows what standup is, but they're not necessarily huge fans like you and I are. If they were to see this movie, would his performance 
register as fake. I wonder. But I mean, yeah, I think it would subconsciously yeah. come across as false to anyone. I think so. Okay. Because like you're saying, there are a lot of talented standups yeah. actually in the movie that you get to see them do. You know, Hannibal Burris does, does, uh, um, does, does a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's probably not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, I feel like on. it should have been like an indicator to Robert De Niro. That's like, hey, uh, you know how uh, one of your most notable characters is a bad stand up comic? Yeah, <laughs> maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. take that as a cue. Yeah, exactly. Um, OK, speaking of man, my next two movies, not that I'm going to uh, do one right after another. Oh, so you're going to tease that second one. Yeah, uh, I was on a bit of a Michael Mann kick after watching Black Hat, so I watched, I rewatched uh, Collateral, which I haven't seen in quite a while, and I know you're not a huge fan of. And I like it. Do you know one thing can mar an entire movie? Okay, and there's a part where there's like a, a coyote running across the street or whatever in slow motion, yeah. and there's a, the song. It's by I know who it's by a band called Nonpoint, okay. and they're terrible, and it's such a terrible song, and it feels so dated i thought it was audio slave maybe it is audio slave i thought it was a non-point song maybe there's a non-point song somewhere else in the movie that's but i don't like either one of those bands yeah um in any case it feels it, like, that it is bars a, the whole movie it really like i'm fine with the coyote thing oh yeah sure but to under and i'm even fine with bringing in music to kind of under to underline it but once you hear lyrics it's like well this is wrong uh-huh. this is a wrong thing to do um but it's, uh, yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. Um, but yeah, and watching it, I really do, uh, I really do respond to it in a number of ways. I like, I think Tom Cruise is doing really great, surprisingly understated work given the type of character he's given. Um, and I like how much time we spend with Mark Ruffalo because one of the big ass, one of the big elements of the film is that, uh, you know, would anyone notice, you know, life isn't important. The people that die aren't important if you don't know them. Mm -hmm. And so we spend time getting to know this guy who is sympathetic to Jimmy Fox when nobody else is. And he gets killed by Tom Cruise. And it's like, we are sad for this guy in the, a guy who really isn't that key to the main story, but we've gotten to know him. And I don't know. It's just in that way. It's weird. I was, I was put in mind of Fruitvale station. The idea of just, we don't know that we're watching Mark Ruffalo in the last day of his life, but that's what we are watching. He's a supporting character certainly, but um, I don't know. So that struck me as interesting. And the other thing is that like Jamie Foxx, who's obviously the lead, but he was also in Ray that same year. And so that's what he was going to be pushed for. And he was nominated for supporting actor for collateral. He's great. He's really, I feel like Jamie Foxx is usually at his best when he's crafting a full on character as opposed to trying to imitate somebody else or, 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 you know, try to capture mannerisms or something like that. Um, and he's really, really good at this, uh, good in this film as playing a guy who has a certain degree of confidence, but not really that much. You actually see that he, he is a little bit beaten down by Mm -hmm. life. That's something I didn't remember. And maybe because Twelve years later, maybe I've been a little bit beaten down by life, and I can recognize it when I see it. But uh, and Javier Bardem is is in it very briefly, and, yeah, and right. it turns in a, a good performance. It's a really well put together film, and one that is uh, very Michael Mannish. All right, um, 
I won't talk too long about this because it's a, a rewatch. Um, isn't yeah? I guess it's my only rewatch in this entire month. Um, uh, but I rewatched as I talked about on I think a recent episode. Uh, I rewatched Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, mm-hmm. um, which is a good movie to return to. It's one of those movies that is, um, I guess, be kind of tried to compare it to Mahal and Drive because it's not really like Mahal and Drive, but I guess it kind of is. It's it's weird and it changes. Have you seen it? Uh, no. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, it has, it's, you know, it changes the story as it goes. And, um, it has all sorts of strange stuff like ghost monkeys and flirtatious talking fish and monks and stuff. Um, but I, the reason I compare it to Mulholland drive is that it's a movie that it has a story, but the story doesn't entirely like hold together, but, it improves over repeat viewings, not because the story comes to make more sense, but because the more you watch it, the more you realize that the story isn't really the point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's why I like returning to a movie like uncle boomy who can recall his past lives because I, um, the further I get, uh, into it, the more I can lose myself in it and just enjoy the, the scenes, uh, moment to moment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the first part, the first time, I mean, I I jokingly say, ghost monkeys because that's technically what they are they're 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 people in like hairy suits that they don't actually even look like monkeys uh, yeah. but they have glowing red eyes um and uh you know ghost monkey sounds funny and it is kind of funny and the movie has a sense of humor about it but the first time you see them um it is like legitimately scary <laughs> like uh, like yeah. it's like an unsettling moment because it's just Boonmi and his uh sister and like um, guy who works from his farm having dinner outside on his patio at night. And all of a sudden you see it's too dark to even see the form. You just see the two glowing red eyes coming up the stairs onto the, hmm. onto like the back patio or whatever. And it is, yeah, it's really creepy. Um, and I look forward to that every time I watch it, but, uh, yeah, we can move on. All right. Next up, my third Michael Mann film, uh, of this, uh, oh my, over the course of admittedly four weeks, uh-huh. uh, I rewatched for the first time in a long time, uh, heat and so between heat and Ben heard your month was taken care of. Yeah, exactly. Um, how long is he is it two hours and 40 minutes or something? Uh, around that. Yeah. Maybe even longer. Um, it goes by pretty quick. I gotta say, I, like, agree, yeah. um, I, I watched it within the past five years, probably. And I definitely, boy, there is, it's weird how intangible it is. like the 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 enormity of that coffee shop scene i can't put my finger on it i think it's because is because that coffee shop's not there anymore that's it yes because i wanted to go there (laughs) i've been there before where where was it Uh, on wilshire uh in beverly hills kate manalini is what it's what it's called Hmm. it's not even really a coffee shop yeah it doesn't look like it like once i know because i were in my mind it was much more of like a denny's and then when i saw i was like "Mm, this looks upscale yeah yeah it's it's um but uh yeah so i was on wilshire like at uh doheny uh roughly um and i um work in that neighborhood i guess mm. uh, so i'm by there all the time uh, and i do think about heat every time i pass by where kate manalini used to be oh i'm sorry um, i did get to eat there once but there's something about um and this this is something that we uh, uh an episode i've been wanting to do it's uh, sometime in the future uh 
which is uh, what I've come to learn is uh, the term extra textual, mm. which is, uh, and I actually made a joke about that uh, in class that I, and I hurt my teacher's feelings. Here's how that happened. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I was making a comment in class and I said, and I was, go- I was about to use the term extra textual. And I, and so I said, calling attention to it as I tend to do. I said, I said, Oh, I'm about to use a term I learned in class, extra textual. And my teacher's like, Oh good. I was like, I'll probably never use it again. <laughs> well, you've already proven. Yourself I know. Wrong. I know. Uh, and she's just, and she goes, Oh, <laughs> and, uh, I talked to her later and indeed I had hurt her feelings and, uh, and I apologized for it. But, um, anyway, because I'm an asshole, David. Yeah, uh, I mean, is who I am. But I, yeah, you're just you're just making a joke. I feel so bad for you and her at this point. Yeah, no, there's no winners here. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, poor so, everybody. Yeah, life is a comedy of errors. <laughs> eh, maybe let's focus more on the last part of that. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but yeah, the, this idea, the things that we bring with us into the film that are associated okay. with the film. Maybe uh, purposely in many cases, but there's no. So it's kind of, kind of like Geely, <laughs> right? <laughs> How everyone was sick of Benefer. Oh, sure. By that Absolutely. point, yeah, yeah. And that's maybe part of the reason yeah. people hated it so much, yeah. but also because it's a terrible movie. <laughs> yes, there's a few reasons. Uh, <laughs> don't get me wrong, like text, context, and extra textual. There's a lot of reasons people hated that. Yeah, I'm saying plenty of terrible movies have done well at the box office. Sure, sure. Geely <laughs> <laughs> didn't because of ex- for extra textual reasons. Um, yeah, and so uh, so that scene I think is it's a well-written scene and it's very well acted, but I think the reason that it's so big in the, in the public consciousness consciousness, like that is a, that's a scene that people still talk about. That's 21 years old now. Mm -hmm. And it's because like, you've got these two guys, both Italian, both came up at the same time, both had iconic roles, both were nominated, like went back and forth as far as Oscar nominees. And, here they are now kind of maybe not necessarily Hollywood royalty yet, but by 95, yeah, maybe they, they might've been. Yeah. yeah. And very much like neither one was necessarily above the other. They were exa- at exactly the right at the mm-hmm. same point. Um, and had somehow never been yeah. in a room together in yeah. a movie. They'd, they'd been in the same movie together. Yeah. But not... And I think technically in, there's a fade where they're technically in the same frame. That's in yes, there is. Part two, there is, but they were um, never in the same scene together. Yeah. And so it's, it's very strange. And to see these guys and that the only other time I can imagine it is in the departed between Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio. But even then DiCaprio has the drop on Matt Damon Mm -hmm. and has a gun on him the whole time. So it's not equal this it's two guys, right? Each, each at like their peak performance on opposite sides of the law. Both of them have something over the other guy at any moment. And it's just like, they really come at each other as complete equals as characters and as actors. And that scene is really powerful. And both of them are doing, are delivering very different types of performances. Like Pacino is pretty over the top in that character. And De Niro is kind of his standard, like, you know, tight lipped type of guy, but they see something in each other, both the characters and the actors see something in each other in that moment, like a very kindred spirit type of thing. And 
you know, it, it almost reminds me in a, in a very odd way. Ex-presidents tend to work together. Mm-hmm. Even if they were the bitterest of rivals. Yeah. And I think it's because like, yeah, nobody really knows this except you. And in that moment, it's just like, nobody knows what it's like to be Robert De Niro, except maybe Al Pacino and <laughs> vice versa. And I don't know. That's just kind of, uh, it, there's so much more to the movie, but that's the scene people will talk about yeah. that. And like kind of just all the, the general bank robberies and that sort of thing. And it's a great cast all around. And one thing that I come away with is just like, Oh, it's I'm, I'm bummed that Tom Sizemore went crazy because he was a really good dependable actor on screen. Hmm. He had a real presence to him. Like if you saw saving, Pri- he worked well in an ensemble. Mm-hmm. If you see saving private Ryan, like there's a lot to that character that he really brings out. And, uh, and he went a little crazy and then that's, uh, that's done. But, uh, yeah. So I was very happy to rewatch heat given some of the stuff that I had been thinking about as a function of my class. All right. Uh, moving on to a, another, um, I don't know why I said another, I don't know if I've talked about one yet, uh, an animated film, uh, coming out later this year, directed by Garth Jennings. It's called sing. All right. Um, and it's, uh, oh yeah, we did talk about animated film two plus hours ago uh trolls um and this is better than trolls um but it's not really any more essential i guess um i mean garth jennings is uh a director he made um son of rambo which i didn't see i saw that he made um the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy uh movie which i liked you didn't i like it i think it's more disposable than it should be but i mostly like it um but they do do marvin really well yeah, yeah he knows how to have fun you know um from in a, in a visual sense. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's, there's plenty of that. Um, it's man. If, if I thought trolls was a jukebox musical, this is wall to wall. Sure. But I will say the song choice is way better in this one. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that was Garth Jennings or who, but better taste. There's just better songs, uh, throughout, uh, sing. Um, but, uh, the, the stakes never seem that high. Uh, and so it's the kind of movie that while is visually enjoyable and some of the songs are good, it's, it won't stick with me. Like it'll, mm-hmm. it'll, uh, it'll be forgotten except for maybe there is one, uh, sort of flood disaster scene, like an indoor flood. I don't want to go into the whole backstory of how the inside of the theater gets flooded. Um, but it's like, it's a disaster movie, like Titanic type of sequence. Hmm. It's really well done. Um, and it's probably the highlight uh, of the movie that and a shot at the very end, um, which is, um, I mean, this is a, a, a computer animated movie. It's not stop motion, but there is a time-lapse sequence. Hmm. Um, but so it mixes that sort of like the, the mechanics of time-lapse is something we know of physical film, you know, not like, or, or at least of a camera, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Not an animated thing. So it's mixing that, but then the way the camera moves within the time-lapse could really only happen in an animated movie. So you've got a time-lapse of a building being built while the camera is swirling inside and around the the building. Uh, It's a really cool, it's a really cool moment. Uh, Those two things uh, stand out. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say they're worth seeing the movie for though. Yeah. Uh, But not bad. It's just not great. All right. Next up for me is Swiss army man. All right. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. Is it actually? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Um, it was one of my top three of Sundance, along with Certain Women in Manchester by the Sea. Okay. Uh, yeah, I liked it more than most people. Um, Probably not more than me. They're, they're, uh, <laughs> obviously not. Um, 
but yeah, there are a lot of people, uh, that I saw online that were giving it like two and a half, three stars out of five. Um, and just said like, uh, I don't know that it wasn't doing anything remarkably profound, that it wasn't as interesting as it thought it was and all that sort of thing. I do agree that I think it has some, not necessarily third act issues, but maybe some resolution resolution issues, um, as far as where it just kind of pushes the theme a little bit too hard there at the end. I don't mind that. But beyond, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've heard other people not be satisfied with the way it ended, but yeah. I, I, it worked for me. I'm, I think I'm satisfied with the very end, <laughs> but the way that it like pulls so many threads together at once, um, kind of bothers me, but at the same time, you mean like, like where they happen to come out of the woods, that sort of thing is where they happen to come out of the woods. And then like when everyone shows up, all the people that show up, like right, it's just, yeah. you know, and also here's a weird thing. And listeners, this won't mean anything to you if you haven't seen them film, but like there comes a moment at the very end when everyone is standing on a beach and Paul Dano, I'm sorry, everyone, this is the movie Paul Dano farts. Uh-huh. And it's meant to be like this moment of like, release quite literally but like he's free to be himself in that moment Uh um and you you see like his his girlfriend who is um it's not Mary, girlfriend. Uh, uh, right. So, right. Very much not. Um, his, uh, would be girlfriend. Let's say that, um, <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah. Where you see her like kind of cover her face and other people are like, Ugh. and it's like, no way it's a beach. And he's like 15 to 20 feet away. <laughs> oh, I see. No one is that's smelling what, this thing. That's what stuck with you. It did kind of bother me, <laughs> but, um, great acting. Like uh-huh. Paul Dano has hard work to do. Daniel Radcliffe definitely has hard work to do. And not merely physically, but also the idea of, of just this guy who basically wakes up and in doing so is essentially born and just is learning things as Paul Dano is teaching him. And as from a symbolic standpoint, it's, it's essentially Paul Dano, like looking back over his life and teaching Mm -hmm. Daniel Radcliffe as he goes. So, and there comes this moment and it feels, Oh my gosh, this moment was actually kind of heartbreaking. And it's, it's funny, but it's when, uh, Daniel Radcliffe first, like gets some kind of like a sexual, uh, charge Uh and gets, you know, an erection Uh and his response, like is funny, but it's also, it feels very real to me where he goes, Oh, my body is disgusting. (laughs) But it's uh, just that level of embarrassment that like that a a young teenager would feel or something like that. Like I I totally get it. There's a lot. I hate that kind of humor, but that's the thing. It's not about that. It isn't. It's basically me about how we're all fucked up and life is gross and the world is dirty, but it's still, uh, it's still great and there's still beauty in all of it. And you would, and you would think that the, the grossness and the brokenness of everybody would, we could use that to sort of bind us together. Cause you know, as they say, everybody poops, um, (laughs) we could do that, but somehow by bringing shame into things that aren't even moral, a moral issue in any, in any way by bringing shame into it, we just wall ourselves off. And if somebody else, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't like when people fart around me. Yeah. I don't around anybody. Uh, partially cause like, well now there's a, now there's a smell issue and that's, you've now hurt me. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, it's just like, yeah, but to act as though nobody does this is ridiculous. You know, something right. that could be unifying is actually dividing and only because we let it be. And 
yeah, there's a lot going on with that movie, and I really, really liked it. It's also very funny. It's also very funny. It has maybe one of the like top five hardest laughs of 2016 in a movie for me. Uh, and I'll just say that I won't give the whole setup because it would take too long and I don't want to spoil it for it. But it's when Daniel Radcliffe goes, Laura Dern? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and along those lines... Uh, <laughs> Along those lines, great soundtrack on top of everything yeah. else. Yes. Uh, for reasons that, you know what, I won't even get into because I'll let the listener f- uh, discover it themselves. Or they might have discovered it back in June. When Indeed, yes. yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right, I have a first-time classic movie. This is something I've been trying to do more the last couple of years, filling all of my blind spots. This is a movie that you love and that I am only, shamefully only getting to for the first time just now, but I finally saw James Wales, the bride of Frankenstein. Oh, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know this was your, yeah, I'd never seen, seen it. it I'm a big fan of Frankenstein. I've seen it multiple times. Yeah. Uh, I never got around to the sequel and this goes on the short list. I think of sequels that are better than the original. And I do love the original. Yeah. This has kind this, of a gremlins two type of feel to me where James Whale was like, all right, you want me to make a sequel? I'm going to do it my way. And he made a pretty weird movie. It's Um, like, this is, if James whale were a movie, (laughs) this is the movie. Um, So what did, what did you, what'd you like about it? Aside from everything? Uh, I liked that. It's, um, sort of like gremlins too. It's both funnier and darker than the original. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it is funny and, but not in the, like, the way that there's a lot of jokes in it, it's just like kind of goofy and over the top at times. Yeah. But also like you've got, um, Dr. Pretorius, who's an amazing character yeah. who is pure evil, but kind of gleeful, yeah. uh, about it. Um, and he makes these little people, which are, which is also very perverse. Yeah. Uh, and, and weird. Uh, and then it's also tragic. Like I think, yeah, uh, I had not seen, obviously, despite not seeing the movie, I knew what Franken to Frankenstein's monsters final words were. Yeah. And that's, it is, uh, it is tragic. Uh, yeah. and, and I, um, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I also like, did we talk about it last week? I don't um, think so. When we did movies named after characters who want the main character. Oh, maybe we did. Yeah. yeah we might I think have. I might've brought it but up. But I yeah. don't think like, and I knew it wasn't about her, but I, I didn't realize that the bride of Frankenstein isn't revealed until there's five minutes left in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize it was that far in before we actually see her. And you know, and she plays, looks great. You know who plays the bride? Uh, Elsa Lanchester. Yes. You know who she is? No, she is, uh, Charles Lawton's wife. I did not know that. Um, um she's beautiful in the movie. Yeah. Um, and apparently not uh, nearly as tall as they made her <laughs> from what I was reading. Cause they tried to, they needed her to be as tar- tall as poor as Karloff. Oh yeah. That, essentially like on stilts. <laughs> yeah. That's, that definitely wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah. Uh, the, Pretorius to me is like one of the best like movie characters of all time, because yeah. what's interesting to me is that there, there's a scene where he is, uh, talking with, uh, the monster and where anybody else, who knows who the monster is and what he is, even Frankenstein himself, they're just uneasy around him. Pretorius, no problem. (laughs) He just sits there and talks like he's an old friend. Like this is a man at ease with 
what is evil and what is uh, very unnatural. Um, yeah, it's a marvelous film. Have you seen The Invisible Man? Um, yes, I have seen The Invisible okay. Man. That's him too, right? Yeah. That's James Whale? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've not I, seen Showboat. Uh, nor have I. And okay. uh, he did one called The Old Dark House that actually uh, it sounds pretty good to okay. me as well. But uh, yeah, and I definitely, um, I think for a number of reasons, I think when you say like the the film is funny but not like, jokey funny i think the word could be camp you could uh guess, yeah there's a campy quality to to those films but uh yeah, yeah. i guess it is camp uh, i just think it's goofy yeah there's that too <laughs> but it's but like but it's the same stuff that I, I keep comparing it to gremlins too because it's the same stuff i respond to with joe dante is that yeah. he's willing to just be a goofball yeah uh okay so well that's exciting i'm glad you i am glad you got to see it um, we gotta keep moving though yeah all right, so I saw David Yates' Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Oh, uh, tell me at length about it. Okay. Oh, shoot. Hang on now. Let's see what I can remember, seeing as how you are obviously sitting right next to me and not away from the table right now. Um, yeah, I liked this movie, kind of. Not really. Um, I wish I liked it more. I will say that maybe I think the issue here... Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Mrs. Devereaux. <laughs> uh, I do think the issue here is that J.K. Rowling is not a screenwriter. This is what I didn't know, because I haven't read any of these books, but I didn't know is that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the book is just like a guide. Yeah, I think I knew that. And so this is like, oh, the guy who wrote the guide, we're telling that story in apparently least, five yeah, parts. Yeah, he's telling a, a fifth of this story, yeah. apparently. Um, the thing that most intrigued me was, oh, let's see the American version of the Wizarding World. And apparently, the, and it takes place in New York in the 1930s, and apparently the next movie will take place in Paris. Oh, that's cool. So like, it'll be a new place every time, which lends itself, to, you know, the nature of the main character lends itself to that. So that is really neat to me. I like that a lot. Um, one thing that I definitely uh, come away with is like, okay, JK Rowling does not like the United States apparently, um, <laughs> based on, you know, the, the, uh, let's see the whimsy, uh, as you would say, the whimsy of, uh, the, the, the British ministry of magic, as opposed to the, uh, more than vaguely fascistic elements of the, uh, American, huh. uh, they don't call it the ministry. I don't remember what they call it, but it's, it's very, they're like, they're inherently suspicious. There's no fun. It's all just like cold and kind of corporate. Um, but and the ministry of magic is not fun either. True, but some of the people that are behind it, at least uh, there is a, a whimsical quality to them, whereas this okay. is like pure bureaucracy um, and, and a very cold, unsympathetic one as well. Like, you know, this is one where they sentence people to death, you know, and as is pointed out in, I would say, a very obvious way, uh, as uh, Eddie Redmayne's character is asked, like, you know, what do you know about the U S and he said, well, I know a few things and he lists off a bunch of bad things he knows, uh, including uh, specifically like the wizarding world. He goes, you know, the idea that, that, uh, you know, uh, non-magical people can, uh, are not, uh, sorry, that wizards aren't allowed to marry non-magical people. Uh, why you can't just marry whoever you want. It's like, yeah, got it. Thank you. 
Like I, it's what I, t- I didn't know that was a part of the movie. Uh, yeah. It just seemed really like, I understand like if you have a, if you have an issue you want to uh, address, that's fine. But at the same time, like it's really obvious. <laughs> and, and that's the thing is it just doesn't feel. And they, she keeps introducing things and then 45 seconds later acts as though we've known this the whole time. And then she writes it like a book Mm -hmm. because in a book you can introduce something and devote five pages to it. And then when it does come into play in the story, no problem here, you're given about 10 seconds of explanation and then the story incorporates it and it just doesn't really work very well. Um, there's some good things to it and there's a, there's a twist, uh, that I didn't know about, uh, in which uh, a cast member shows up at the lads, you know, I know. I think I've become the guy who just not not to I don't want to spoil other people, but I have become the guy who seeks out really spoilers when I when I hear there's a twist. If I, I mean, if it's something that I'm not interested in, I guess. Yeah. Like with uh, the Walking Dead, like I needed to know who uh, Negan killed. I needed to know immediately, and then I found out, and I realized, wait, I don't watch the show. Yeah, you have no association this, this with these characters. To me, I just I I just learned. I just read two names. <laughs> I have no idea. Like, well, at least now I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing now that I uh, reason I have. So yeah, when I found out there was a twist in Fantastic Beasts, I sought it out. And I didn't know there was a twist, and maybe I would have sought it out, maybe not. But uh, but having not sought it out, once it's revealed, it's like, oh, interesting. But I also didn't know there were going to be four more movies. So yeah. when they did that, I remember thinking like, huh, that's interesting. an odd choice for the very last few minutes of the film. Oh, well, well, there's going to be five more. So obviously this cast members four more, sorry. And so obviously this uh, new cast member is going to play a very large role, but uh, yeah, I think you just spoiled it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. uh, Am I up next? Yep. All right. I saw a movie that you saw that I liked more than you. So let's talk about John Favreau's the jungle book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot I like about it, by the way. But the thing, because I went, I remembered exactly what you said about it, and then I also went back and read your review, and I've decided this one's on you. I think All right. your problems with the, with the Jungle Book, which basically, or at least the, mo- the thing you focused on the reviews in, in your review on, was the use of the songs and the, the that you saw them to be jarring with the tone that John Favreau was ma- setting for the movie. Yeah, uh, one specifically, yes. I think this has to do with your not entirely being a musical guy that I think you, your brain is have is rejecting the idea that, uh, King Louie can be, um, sinister and intimidating and also sing a goofy jaunty song. Cause he, cause like if you watch musicals enough, you know, like that isn't that happens, you know, uh, it's you know, something Fagan sings. Uh, I think I'll have to think it out again. Um, sure. it's just like, a, uh, it's, it's a, it, it's a musical. So it's a fun song. Um, okay. A few things. Okay. First off that song, let's put it this way. That song was written for, and maybe even by Louis Prima, Uh who did the voice of King Louis, obviously. Uh, and they wrote that character to be like Louis Prima. So literally everything about the song does flow out of that as opposed to mafia boss slash Colonel Kurtz. So uh, and it so sounds to like you're bringing in, some extra textual stuff to the movie. Oh, here. undoubtedly. Cause I'm not thinking about Louis Prima at all. The other, th- uh, right. I'm fine with that. But at the same time, like 
to take something that was meant for one thing and just act like you can plug it into this other thing and it works fine. Also, but I don't it think mu- it's just plugged in. I think it is recontextualized. And part of that's in Christopher Walken's like vocal performance as a singer, as well as his acting is. I, I love, I love his performance as the character. Um, and I actually like that, you know, when he's chasing Mowgli through the halls, it's actually quite frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it's like when the Hulk is chasing black widow through yeah. the, uh, the helicarrier. Absolutely. Um, but I think my other problem is that it wouldn't be as jarring if there was as much singing throughout the film as there was in the original. Like you mentioned, I'm not a musical guy. I can be a musical guy if there are five songs or more. I see. But if there's one that's just kind of hummed a little bit by Baloo, and then one that's a full-on musical number, and nothing else... Yeah, that doesn't bother me, I guess. Oh, boy, it bothered me so much. I I could tell from reading your review. It was like, oh, this is even... Uh, he disliked this even more than I remembered from our movie journal conversation. And it's frustrating because I likes, I maybe even love so much else about the movie and, oh man, they really, and like, I like that song from Ka, the snake and they do Which incorporate the, it at the end and, and, and credits, but I remember thinking, sung by Scarlett Johansson, Scarlett Johansson as well. Yeah. And it sounded really good. And I mm-hmm. thought like, if you better just, than her album of Tom Waits covers, <laughs> I will, as much as I love Scarlett Johansson and everyone loves her, I'm never going to let the world forget. <laughs> yeah. I listen back to those and I think like this should work. And for some reason it doesn't at all. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. Like there are certain choices and I feel like if they had just added cause song and maybe one more, I'd be, I'd be more okay with it. Like that one song wouldn't have jumped out at me so much Hmm. because it's part of the larger motif of like, Oh, these characters will go into song from time to time. But I don't know. I'm sorry. I've been doing most of the talking. You really like the the movie in general. Yeah, I wouldn't need to go into it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a spectacle. Um, yeah. And, but not without losing uh, track of the spine of the story, uh, as well. Yeah. Um, and the kid is fine. He's fine. But one of the, one of the things I really like that they do with the character is that they show that like, yeah, he might be in the jungle, but he's not really of the jungle. Like mm-hmm. his ability to come up with inventions, mm-hmm. which is what separates man from animal. Mm-hmm. I love that. And just that, that he just does it naturally. And that's what makes him win ultimately. Yeah. And I think that's kind of awesome. Um, the only thing that I didn't get is, why some animals don't talk. Yeah. Like why is King Louie the only, uh, simian character who can talk the rest of them just scream. And there's like the things that steal the food from Mowgli. And then like, also I was like, how far down? Like when he's stealing the honey, like he can't, he can't talk to bees, I guess like bees don't talk. I could see bees having their own little frequency there that, uh, you know, you don't, you can't speak. You can speak mammal, but not insect. Okay. Okay. That's what I'll, that's what I'll say. All right. Uh, let's move on. What's next. I do enjoy that one. I laughed harder than I probably should have. I just, I enjoyed it where uh, Baloo is climbing up the wall uh-huh. and then the bird flies by and he goes, Oh <laughs> bird, that's not a good sign. Cause it means he's up really yes, high. Yeah. Okay. Next for me, rewatch <laughs> Jen and I watch out. <laughs> rewatch. <laughs> We should have like a little drop. Rewatch. Rewatch. Oh, 
we have been recording for a while. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, and we still have a whole fucking episode to do after that. Okay. Um, or not. We can just skip it. <laughs> we can't skip it. <laughs> we'll figure something. We're not going to skip a week. Okay. Uh, on Thanksgiving, Jen and I watched our favorite Thanksgiving film, which is Jodie Foster's Home for the Holidays. That's a good movie. That's a great movie. I At this point, the last I'm time comfortable. We talked about it on the movie journal was probably last Thanksgiving. That's about right. Um, that movie is great. It really is just. It is. I mean, there there's like some zaniness that happens, but at the same time, yeah. And so there there might be a heightened element to this family, but at their core, boy, does it feel real. And just the the way they interact, like I get a I get a real sense of history with every character and every individual relationship and the overall dynamic. Um. And it is one of those things that I think you and I talked about this last year. As I get older, my perspective changes. Um, You know, I think obviously Holly Hunter is the lead and we're meant to see things through her perspective. And we look at, you know, Cynthia Stevens, Stevenson's character um, as, you know, this, this woman who's just very, not necessarily, I won't say prudish, but she's just, very strict and very proper and just does not really approve of what her siblings do. And as I've gotten older and, and I, and I definitely saw her that way for a long time. As I've gotten older though, I definitely see things from her point of view and you know, and I'll mention this. So my, my grandma passed away uh, a few weeks ago and my mom basically took care of her for essentially my entire life. Like my grandma was uh, started being just in ill health, both physically and mentally before I was born. So like my whole life, she was, she was always somebody that needed to be handled. Um, and my mom and my grandpa and my dad kind of handled her. Well, okay. Then my dad passed away. And so then it was my mom and my grandpa and then he got sick and then he passed away. And so then it was just my mom And, you know, my mom has brothers, but they live elsewhere. And I look at the, the amount of stress that my mom had to deal with in taking care of both her parents and then just her mother. And then my mom's, uh, I say new husband, they've been married for several years, but, uh, you know, he got sick and, and so she had to take care of him and her mom. And I look at that and I just think like, yeah, that can put strain on someone. And when I when you look at Cynthia Stevens' char- Stevenson's character and you realize that yeah, she's doing this alone. She has a husband, but she's mm-hmm. taking care of her parents who they can still drive, they can still take care of themselves, but as they get older, it's becoming less that. And her sister moved away, her brother moved away. She's taking care of this on her own meanwhile, and then her siblings come in and just start judging her. Mm-hmm. And I just realized, man, this film, it wouldn't take much for this film to be a complete change of perspective, see it from her and see her two asshole siblings <laughs> who don't, who take responsibility for nothing yeah. come in and just start making fun of her and her boring life. And it just, it does such justice to all of these characters, even characters that I think the film might view negatively. It still gives them their day in court. It is such a mature film, such an adult film and still remarkably funny yeah. on top of everything else. Uh, I gotta watch it again. Marvelous. 
All right, let's move on to the next thing that I watched. Oh, oh, yeah, I can't wait to tell you about uh, okay. you and the listener about this this movie. Um, uh, it's directed by a guy named Zach Clark. It's called Little Sister, and I rented it and watched it on Amazon. Yeah, it's uh, available on those kind of services, and you should definitely watch it. It's a, it's a newish movie. Uh, the title has a double meaning uh, in that the main character is. Um, going home to see her older brother. Uh, mm-hmm. She's his little sister, but also, um, she's, um, in a convent preparing to become a nun. So mm-hmm. she's a, she's a young nun. She's a little sister. Um, <laughs> Oh, got it. <clears throat> so the movie, it came out this year, but it takes place in, um, October of 2008, which reminds me of a topic we needed to do someday, which is like, uh, recent movies that take place on October. <laughs> no, I don't know. Like, recent past period film, like movies that are set less than 10 or 15 years before they were released. Love it. You know, big Lebowski is one that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, I'm never entirely clear what year train spotting is supposed to take place, but I feel like it's around 10 to 15 years, uh, it's, yeah. before, uh, if that came out in 96. So it was probably supposed to be like mid early to mid eighties. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I want to do an episode on, on those because like there's, a reason like if you're going to do a movie like that, you know, in with that short of a throwback, mm-hmm. there's a reason you're made, you're setting that movie then. Um, and I don't know what Zach Clark's reason was necessarily here, but I know that being on the verge of that presidential election, the movie and watching it right after this presidential election, uh, really, uh, colored how I, how I saw it, um, in a really interesting way. But the premise is that, uh, Addison, Addison Timlin, uh, Timmins, I can't remember the, uh, the actress's name, uh, who plays Colleen, the nun in training, um, hasn't been home in three years. Um, she essentially left right after she graduated high school, uh, when her mother, uh, played by Ali Sheedy committed, uh, tried to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, uh, is only home now because her older brother, who is a Marine, um, was, uh, burned all over his, um, like face and head, uh, in Iraq and mm. has been in a hospital. And, um, her mom sent her an email saying your brother is home now. He's coming home now. Yeah. Um, so she takes a week off from nun training, uh, <laughs> to go, uh, to go home and spend some time with her family. And, um, uh, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a heavy movie, but it's also a really positive movie in that it's basic premise is about, uh, forgiveness, um, forgiveness of one another, forgiveness of yourselves and forgiving. And I don't know if this is, you could watch the movie and debate whether this is supposed to be about family or if it's supposed to be about her faith or whatever, but forgiving even when someone hasn't said, I'm sorry, you know? Yeah. Um, cause you know, we realized like, Oh, Ali Sheedy's character trying to commit suicide was not out of the blue. There's like, it was not the only thing that sent Colleen, packing like there's Mm -hmm. this is a very bad mother-daughter relationship um but by the end they seem to be in a pretty pretty good place even though neither one of them has actually said i'm sorry to one another it's a it's a it's a it's a nice thing but um i i just i like movies that are sweet and positive while also um having a darkness to them. And the fact that you've got one character who is a full character in the movie and walk and spends the entire movie, you know, as he's, his skin is burned. Like he's, yeah. he, he wears, um, uh, he wears sunglasses because he's, um, 
I guess, embarrassed about how his eyes look because they're like permanently like red from mm-hmm. uh, the fire or whatever. Um, and his skin is look, looks like a burn. Um, yeah. And uh, he's just a character movie. And it is shocking the first time he comes to the door. But I think this is kind of the point is that after you're, you know, shocked by how he looks, then he just becomes, Oh yeah, that's, that's him. That's yeah. uh, and now I forget the character's name. Um, and that's how it is for the characters in the movie too is, uh, um, but I, I, anyway, I, I don't, I don't need to go into, I wish if this were a movie I had reviewed, I would have written probably a long review about it because I do have a lot of thoughts. Um, but it also contains, uh, and I'll end on this, um, one of my single favorite scenes in any movie this year, um, which I had read about. It was part of the reason I read a review and it had mentioned this scene. And it was why I wanted to, 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 to do it, um, to watch it. Um, uh, it has a part where Colleen to try to cheer up her older brother. Mm-hmm. Cause even though Colleen is always is, you know, she's, she doesn't drink or do drugs. She's a virgin. She's went off and became a nun. She was super into like goth and metal and stuff when she was, uh, in uh, a kid and that was something she and her older brother had in common. They had that bond yeah. that they were into that kind of music. And when she comes home, her brother doesn't really want to come out of his room. And so to try and cheer him up, she dyes her hair bright pink. And then with baby dolls and fake maggots and fake blood does a dance where she lip syncs to a guar song. That's about, um, killing and raping children. <laughs> and she does it to cheer up her brother. And it's like, it's so fucked up and it's also such a sweet scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's the centerpiece of the movie. And one of my, again, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite scenes in any movie this year. Oh, nice. All right. All right. So little, s- little sisters, what that's called. To, All right. To strap in. These next two are going to be rough. Oh, really? Okay. So, I've only got two as well. That's <clears throat> oh, I have three. Oh, how'd I end up uh, ahead of you? I think we, we skipped a couple because I'd seen. Right, yeah. right. Uh, okay. So, So I'm writing a uh, final paper for my text and context class. And I'm writing about Christian film, specifically what I have come to call the Christian social drama. Mm -hmm. And basically my paper is all about how it is in fact a genre. Um, Not an offshoot of of another genre. It is a genre in and of itself. And, uh, so that, so I, I decided like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at all of the Christian social dramas from the last 10 years that have made over $10 million, which is actually, there are only a few, but they did make significantly more than $10 million. And so, uh, some of them I had seen already for more than one lesson, like, uh, God's not dead and fireproof and various others. Uh, I had not seen this next one or the one after that, even though they made like a hundred million dollars each. Um, so I had not seen miracles from heaven, which I, okay. which I watched Jennifer uh, Garner, Jennifer Garner, uh, directed by, uh, uh, Patricia Riggin, who I think also made the 33, which I hadn't seen, but heard okay. was pretty good. Yeah. I didn't see either. Uh, this is based on a true story about, uh, this family, um, uh, two parents and three, uh, daughters and one of the daughters uh has this uh disease it's not even a disease it's just a a condition where uh she can't digest food um and so it just kind of sits there and then they have to like 
and then her belly gets all distended and it's tremendously painful. She's in pain basically all the time and it just sort of develops and there's no surgery that can really be done to fix it. It's really just about pain management because what's, what the issue is like the nerves aren't connected just right Mm -hmm. so that her body knows to do this. Like you and I, we, we don't choose to digest. It just happens. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it's basically about trying to manage this illness and realizing there's, she's not necessarily dying. There, there is actually a, a very, very effective scene in which the little girl says that she wishes she could die because she just wants the pain to stop. It's actually maybe the, it's the, the most powerful scene in the movie. Um, and then uh, one day she's climbing a tree and falls and hits her head and the nerves realign and she's fine after that. That's a true story. Huh. And, uh, so many people say that it's a miracle. Um, from where, huh? <laughs> oh, got it. Uh, Pittsburgh, oddly enough, <laughs> or as I like to call it heaven. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting story if nothing else, but, you know, and, and the characters are Christian. So obviously, you know, they're praying for her. And then when this happens, they view it as a miracle. And so the film wants to tell their story. And so it treats it as such, which is fine. Uh, and I'm a Christian. I believe in miracles. And yet somehow I'm still really <laughs> cynical about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, the film is fine. It is, it, it, it's astounding to me. It's weird to be writing this, this paper And because what I'm essentially doing is arguing that these films need to be judged against each other and against what they're trying to do, you know, because I'm not going to judge a Western against a comedy or a film noir against a musical. Each genre needs to be judged on its own terms. Now, it can still be bad within that, but you just you judge by a different criteria when something is a genre. So that's what I'm arguing in my paper. But I still don't like these movies. So I'm making the argument that where I'm basically defending them but I don't like them. And I wish I had thought about that because I had to watch these things uh-huh. and suffer through them and dislike them. And it's just astonishing to me like the the tone that these movies create and the visual quality that they're that they try to capture which is just like bland, but also really sunny a lot of the time. And just, it's, it's so frustrating because this movie clearly had a budget as opposed to some of these other films. Um, it's, it came out of uh, Sony, uh, Sony's, uh, you know, uh, offshoot company, affirm films. And hmm. it's, it's not a movie I can recommend, uh, even to, even to fellow Christians because, the writing is really on the nose. The performances are just very wide eyed. Um, it's always interesting watching and this doesn't always happen, but like watching people who aren't religious, uh, play religious people. Um, because it's basically just, Oh, I just, I'm in awe of everything and my eyes are wide and this is how I see the world. Cause I just see angels everywhere. <laughs> and it's just like, that's not how this works. Um, 
and it's and that's kind of how how a lot of the film plays and you know when we're dealing with like a sick child and and a, a kid in pain and their parents can't really help them it feels like they would delve into negativity a lot more than they do in this film there's a perfunctory quality to it here um and to the character the main character's doubt um but yeah it's it's very frustrating especially uh John Carroll Lynch shows up as like oh. the pastor of their church. And he's in the next movie I'm going to be talking about too. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess it stands to He's the type that would pop up in a few, in several random movies. Uh, and he plays the pastor of their church and he's, he's really good. It's, there are good elements to the film, but ultimately it's just, it's a standard Christian social drama. So if you don't enjoy those as I don't, uh, you probably <laughs> will not enjoy it. Um, <clears throat> well, if you like movies, you should check out this movie that I'm going to talk about next. Okay. Cause it's really good. You might've heard of it. Uh, comes out this week. It's called Jackie. Uh, oh yeah. Directed by Pablo Lorraine. It's the second, um, uh, biopic that he has coming out, uh, in the right. same month. Um, what's the other one? Uh, Neruda. That's right. Um, and of course, neither one of them are really biopics. Yeah. Um, Jackie is about Jacqueline Kennedy. Um, and it, um, the way it's, we, we, I know we talked about it with Scott a little bit cause I think he saw it at AFI fest, mm-hmm. but I hadn't seen it yet. So now I get to talk about it. Um, and there's a review on the site, right? Uh, yeah, it's okay. up now. Um, I'm quite happy with the review that I wrote. Uh, anyway, um, the, the structure of the movie is that there's basically like, there's five timelines, it, I guess chronologically there's, um, this is a, a real thing that, um, um, Jacqueline Kennedy did uh, it was like a, a live television thing where she gave a tour of the White House and it was like mm. on CBS primetime or whatever and the, um, so there's that there's the moment of the assassination itself which obviously is not oh, very, wow. very long yeah. but uh, is obviously very important and then the main chunk of the story covers the immediate aftermath of the assassination up through the funeral yeah um, and then there's after that there's an interview um, that she does with a life magazine reporter, um, played by Billy Crudup. And then after that, there's a, a conversation with a priest played by John Hurt. Mm-hmm. Those like in the order that I've said them, that's the chronological order in which they take place. But the movie cuts through, you know, cycles back and forth through them, mm-hmm. jumps around, um, the entire movie. That's, that's the, that's the structure, um, uh, of the movie. um, just so you just so you understand uh but it's not a movie that is about i think if i had a i really loved it um uh if i had a complaint about it i would say it's not nearly as emotional a movie as you would expect given that it takes place you know immediately after her husband was murdered in front of her um it has it's a much more intellectual uh movie in that it's really it's less about the assassination and is less about the presidency or John F. Kennedy or anything. And it is, than it is about looking back at this person, uh, as the movie makes clear at one point was president for two years, 10 months and two days, mm-hmm. not a very long time at all. Yeah. Uh, and yet he is remembered as one of the great presidents of the 20th century, um, if not American history. And the movie sort of looks, it makes the argument that part of the reason he's so well remembered, or maybe the brunt of the reason is because Jacqueline Kennedy presented the idea 
of Camelot and the idea yeah. of uh, of of the Kennedys and what um, their their you know his presidency and that administration in that time yeah. uh, meant in such a way that like burned itself onto the public consciousness and that's and that's why we remember so all the things that um, all the you know quote unquote feminine things of like redecorating the White House and like being particular about clothing and presentation and, and decorum and stuff like that, um, that even JFK in his time dismissed as frivolous vanities. Those are the things that yeah. led, th- th- those are the reason that he's so well remembered, uh, be- because she took the time and the energy and she cared about, um, presenting, uh, and an idea that people could uh, be drawn to. Yeah. People, you know, really felt welcomed into their home. Like it wasn't merely the white house. It was their home. And she was like the per- constant hostess uh-huh. in a lot of ways. Um, uh, yeah. And I will say, I've said before, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, I have not always been the biggest Natalie Portman fan. Mm. Um, this is the performance of her career. Uh, if you ask me, um, as someone who's still not seen black swan, <laughs> I know I should see black swan, but, it's, um, but I could see this being, yeah, yeah, it's seeing that it's fantastic. And everyone else is great too. I mentioned Billy Crudup and John Hurt. Um, but, uh, Peter Sarsgaard plays Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Carroll Lynch plays Linda Johnson yeah. and Beth Grant plays Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah. Um, which is, which is great. Um, Greta Gerwig is in it and I always, uh, like her. Um, there's, did, there's other people that I'm overlooking. There's, it's a big cast. I had a question that maybe the, the film answers. Um, how long was she allowed to stay in the white house? Uh, well, I don't know. The movie definitely, uh, brings that up, okay. but the implication is that she, it's not a question of allowed. Like she, yeah. she left <laughs> after the, okay. um, right. because the, yeah, the, the interview with the Billy Crudup character, the Life Magazine character, takes place one week after the assassination, and by that point, she's already moved to Hyannisport. Oh, okay. Um, but most of the movie does take take place in the White House. Okay. Oh, and um, you know who else is in it is Max Casella. Uh, hey, all right. I always like him. He plays, I shouldn't know his name, I want to say he's Johnson's chief of staff, maybe. Hmm. Um, they refer to him by name in the movie. Um, but, uh Yeah. He's, it's weird to think that this. I still part of me still thinks of him as like the teenager from Doogie Howser. Yeah, Vinny. Yeah, uh, yeah. But um, now he's like, uh, yeah. you know, he's this, a middle aged man now. At this point, I probably think of him as much as the club owner and in Inside Lewin Davis, and then the friend from uh, Blue Jasmine. Oh, I forgot about Blue Jasmine. He had a of good course, year. He had a good uh, year that year. Uh, and he was also on The Sopranos in the later seasons. He was. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, of course he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they all were eventually. <laughs> it's it's uh, like Downton Abbey or Gosford Park <laughs> right. or Harry Potter. Harry Potter, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, definitely, I hope you check out my review, but definitely check out um, Jackie and the score by, I don't know how you say her name. Is it Mika Levy? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Mika Who did um, Under the Skin. Under the skin. Um, which I've still never seen, but I've definitely listened to the yeah. score. BP uh, Award winning, by the way. <laughs> okay. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Anyway, also, this is this might not seem like much to you, but this is an end of the year awardsy type biopic type movie. Clocks in at under a hundred minutes. Hey, all right, all right, indeed, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> You're speaking my life. Oh, I'm going to watch it tonight. Um, okay, so next for me is uh, another one of these movies that I'm talking about. This one also has heaven in the title. This one is Heaven is for Real. For real? For reals. <laughs> I'm sure they had to fight to not say it that way. Um, this one is worse than Miracles from Heaven. Uh, but does have a better cast. You got your... Uh, Got your Greg Kinnear, got your Thomas Hayden Church, got your Margot Martindale. Always nice to see her yeah, in a film. Yeah. Uh, and this one, it's it's another story where like you know, kid undergoes has like a medical emergency, and uh, he claims to have seen heaven, and he describes it, and there are people often a lot of people within the church actually who say like this seems dubious uh, to me, and it's so I do like that. I like that the suspicion comes both within and without uh and and outside the church um and there are a couple things that ring very true because greg kinnear uh, is the is the pastor of this church it's a small town so he's the pastor he also works at a carpet company and they're all part of like the volunteer fire uh, fire department like it's it's that small of a town and he has like major money issues uh which is very uh, you know which i liked quite a bit um but uh, but there comes a moment when the the church does not like how much he is seizing on uh, his son's image of heaven and is just kind of he's kind of obsessed with it and is working it into his sermons and stuff and people are getting uncomfortable and leaving and so there comes a moment when he's meeting with like the 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 church board which is just him Thomas Hayden Church Margaret Martindale and then another guy. And in that moment, because I'm I'm not unfamiliar with church bureaucracy, and it is infuriating most of the time. And in that moment, just the way these characters... Okay, you know how... I'll say this. You know how I was talking about how people portray Christians, and it bothers me so much? Mm -hmm. This one is much closer. And unsurprisingly, Margot Martindale hits it out of the park. Because I... I, Probably because, you know, honestly, I mean, she's Southern. She probably grew up in the church or, Mm -hmm. or went at some point in her life and probably saw some of the middle-aged women that she is playing here. And, uh, and the character is not a bad person. Um, to her, uh, she's like, she goes, you know, we, we don't talk much about heaven and hell because those have been used so much as like fear tactics. And so we don't like to talk about them. And it's just like, that's interesting. That actually very much goes against what one would assume of like a Southern mm-hmm. Christian and someone, you know, who is like, Oh, we don't want to feed into the stereotype. Um, so the scenes like that are actually pretty good. And Thomas Hayden church is always uh, fun to watch. But, um, but the story, w- one thing that gets me is that uh, they don't do a good enough job of establishing exactly why Greg, in my opinion, Greg Kinnear's character is so intrigued. He doesn't really say what it is that mystifies him about this. Um, Because at the same, it's like, if he believes his son, like, oh, my son says he saw heaven. Okay, well, either you believe that, well, maybe he was just under anesthetic and, and, you know, hallucinated. Or you believe you saw heaven, like you're a Christian minister, you believe that heaven exists, and you believe in miracles, and so, okay, so which one is it? And he, and if you're somewhere in between, okay, that's fine, but I don't believe you're in between. So they, it's, again, like in the writing, it doesn't quite come through. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, you know what, there is another scene where he actually fights with his wife, 
about this. And that feels very real. Um, you know, they're actually yelling like dishes are being broken and it just feels very organic. So there are moments here because you have a good cast there and, and they're going to make it, they're going to sell it despite it being written and directed by Randall Wallace, which is a problem, uh, all around okay. all the time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's still, you know, I didn't like it or miracles from heaven. I think miracles from heaven, maybe just because I found the story more compelling. Uh, I, I thought it was more interesting, but just both of them. It's if you, and I watched them one right after another, it was, <laughs> it was a tough day and it was a day where it's just like, Oh, everything is sun dappled. I don't like that. Um, and I feel bad making fun of these movies. Cause again, I, I'm trying to accept them on their own terms. But just within that, it's it's honestly, it's just a genre I don't like. Let's put it that way. It's like it's like what I I was explaining it to a friend, and I compared the genre to like soap operas. You know, most people make fun of soap operas, uh, soap operas, and perhaps rightfully so. But there are people that love them, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to make fun of those people, and I'm not going to make fun of the of the the shows themselves. They're just not my cup of tea. But because of where, because of the nature of my other podcast, I happen to interact with them, and that is a bummer. Um, so yeah, we can move on. Okay. And we got one more of them and I've got one more, but one more of them. Yes. Please. Okay. Um, uh, after watching Jackie, um, this is my last, uh, film, uh, of the journal. Um, last night I came home, uh, and I ordered up, uh, the 1958, I'd never seen it before. The 1958 original, the blob. Oh, all right. With Steve McQueen. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Um, it's not bad, but it's also not great. It really isn't. It's, um, <clears throat> I, I, w- I found myself thinking that it would make an interesting back half of a double bill with rebel without a cause. Yep. Because it's very much about teenagers as being something other than adults. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's very much what it's about. But the problem is that all the teenagers are played by 30 year olds. Oh yeah. In this movie. Yeah. Noted 45 year old teenager, Steve McQueen. <laughs> uh, I looked at him. He was actually 27 when the movie was made, but he definitely looks older. He has a weathered face. To, <laughs> yeah. Uh, weathered quality. Uh, yeah. And some of the blob effects are, are fun, yeah. but it's like, it's not particularly scary. It's also like weirdly anticlimactic. Yeah. Cause they don't like, I don't know. They don't blow up the blob. They just like, it never, they don't stop the blob or they yeah. stop it, but they don't kill it. Like they just freeze it and yeah. then take it away. Yeah. You, well, like, you can't eh. stop the blob. Yeah. But it like the blob kills, I think we're told like something by between like 40 to 50 people, mm-hmm. but we only really see like one person actually get it. We see the old man at the beginning and then we yeah. see the doctor actually getting attacked by the blob. Yeah. Like most of it happens off screen. It's, it's a like weirdly unsatisfying movie and it's not that poorly made. It looks good. It um, looks good. It's, it's good. I think it's poorly paced. Yeah. Like I never found it very thrilling or exciting. I wasn't even really invested. Yeah. I guess in the first, like, cause there is like, there's a scene in the beginning where it's Steve McQueen and his best gal. Yeah. Um, and then they stumble upon the old man, take him to the hospital. And then there's like supposed to go like the doctor's like, go back up the mountain and see if you can find, um, you know, something about what happened to him. But then between that and then we go to the mountain, there's like 10 minutes of him just shooting the shit with the other guys. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. It is weird. Um, and yeah, they're all 30 years old as yeah. well. Supposed to be high schoolers. Um, very hey, odd. Did you see the, you haven't seen the remake? I assume. Uh, I haven't. I know the remake is rated R boy. It sure is. So it's gory. Yeah. 
because I mean, the that's blob, what I needed. Uh, maybe, maybe I'd like the remake. Yeah, I mean, the effects in the remake are really good because the blob basically dissolves people. Uh-huh. And so, you know, there, there are moments when, like, somebody, you see the blob about to attack someone and then, like, somebody else, wa- you know, it cuts to someone who's about to walk into the room. And when they do, they walk in and see this person, like, inside the blob and they're just they're being dissolved in that right. moment. And the effects are really horrendous. Huh. Um, and uh, maybe, I should, maybe I should watch that one next. Yeah. From an effects standpoint. Great. Story is not that good. Well, this is a uh, uh, tease for our next movie journal. Whenever it is, uh, it'll be in a week. Sure. Um, uh, expect some more horror movies because I made a list of horror movies back in October. Okay. But my life was so fucking busy. Has essentially like I'm only now getting to a point starting from mid August to now where my life is calming down and I actually have time to watch more movies than just the ones that I have to watch, you know, for yeah. the, the, the podcast or, or the website or whatever. So, uh, anyway, I have a list of horror movies that I meant to watch in October uh, that I'm now, I will be getting to in December. Do I own any of them? I'm sure I, I don't do. Think so. I don't oh, okay. think so. Um, do you need to watch, uh, Nope. The thing? Uh, no, I have the thing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but okay. I have it. Um, All right. Uh, one more movie for you. Okay. So. Um, Is it this one? No, actually. Okay. Oddly enough. Uh, I, I, uh, he was pointing to uh, Alex, Alex Kendrick's War Room, which is a Christian film. No, I uh, just. Or read- it's War Room, which War. is something that maybe the Batmobile would make, like it's on the Batmobile would make. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, no, uh, okay, so we, um, in my class, we were watching, uh, we, we each had to give a presentation about what our final paper was. And uh, this one guy, uh, was, was his paper is all about. Um, depictions of masculinity in the midst of a recession as depicted by the social network. So I watched, I rewatched the social network, uh, cause some of the stuff he said, I thought like, that's actually very interesting. I'm going to rewatch the movie and I was just going to throw it on like while I was eating or something. And then I like, I'll come back to it. Well, before I know it, I'm an hour and 15 minutes in like that movie has such forward momentum. Yeah. Like you get, you get pulled into it and you don't even really realize it. Um, and then, and it's like, well, I'm this far, I might as well finish it. Yeah. And it really is a, a remarkable film. Um, and honestly, some of the stuff that this guy had to say got me thinking about it in a different way in certain regards, specifically, um, the Winklevosses or the Winklevi, as they say, mm-hmm. um, versus, um, Mark Zuckerberg and just, though they are the same age, basically the Winklevosses like represent a very different mentality, which is, you know, they come from privilege, they come from money, but on top of everything else, they do have a certain sense of honor. Like they don't sue him for a long time because mm-hmm. that's not what a Harvard man does. And we might laugh at sir, at that idea, but there's something to be said for like an, uh, trying to embrace a, a code of conduct and, yeah. and honor and that sort of thing. But it is that it is them doing that that basically seals their fate and guarantees that they they lose this. And um, and just the idea of like old school versus new school, old money versus new money, and also 
as much as I always loved that rowing sequence, I always yeah. thought like, why is this in here? Where it is, where it is, <laughs> no less. Um, and it's a wonderful sequence, obviously. But um, and then he had mentioned that like these guys, it's not merely that uh, you know they're not merely like entrepreneurs and all that, but they do this rowing, and it's just, and you see that this is how they are used to doing things. First off, not merely physically, but also just like if we just work hard enough we'll get there. And then they lose that race and after, and it doesn't bother them because they know we did everything we could and we're going to do this again and we'll, we'll win next time because all we have to do is work harder mm-hmm. and problem solved. And that's kind of an antiquated idea in the internet age. Hmm. It's really all about who gets there first and you might not get a second chance. And at this point, like, yeah, you might need to work hard, but the thing you're working hard at actually isn't that hard. It's not a thing you necessarily have to just like grind your way through. Um, and that is where Mark Zuckerberg, that's why he won because he understands I need to get there first and I need to get there in a very specific way. I need to make sure like he spoke internet and they didn't yet. And that's why he is who he is. And so those notions were really interesting to me, and and I'm I'm actually going to read this guy's paper when he's done because I, I feel like he's got some really interesting things to say, and the film is just marvelous. I, there are a couple things here and there. I still am not a hundred percent on board with Sorkin uh, and the way he writes because there's a couple things here and there in the film that I'm like, come on, man. You know, just where you can tell, like, he doesn't really know how to get himself, how to move something forward. And that opening scene, especially where Rooney Mara um, keeps wanting to go back in the conversation um, in a way that didn't feel natural to me. Uh, Hmm. It's clearly basically what Sorkin needs her to do is change the subject to something else so that Mark can then cut her off with his obsession with final clubs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so rather than have her start a new conversation or go somewhere organically, she goes back to something that was said maybe 30 seconds ago and says, you know, is this really, you know, whatever, like he says something and then they talk for a while and then she returns to it as a way of changing the subject, but it doesn't feel natural. And maybe she's trying to change the subject, but it doesn't feel natural. It feels like something like Aaron Sorkin is like, okay, well, we just need her to try something and he cuts her off because he's obsessed. Hmm. And it just didn't feel, it didn't uh, feel right to me. He has such a great track record writing female characters. <laughs> What's weird is he kind of does on TV uh, in West Wing and in uh, Sports Night. Yeah, I guess I mean he has trouble. I think when he's writing them as characters, yes, they're, yeah. they're great. Like C.J. Craig is a great character. Yeah, but when he has to write them as women, like when he has when they have, sure. to, when they have to represent a woman's point of view on sure. the subject, um, it's pretty rough. Uh, especially when it's Ainsley Hayes. Uh, as much as I like Emily Proctor, uh, that character, uh, I think he spent way too much time just putting words in her mouth. Yeah, it's just <laughs> he sat down. It's like, okay, I need to write. I need to write a woman Republican. <laughs> this is gonna be work. I'm gonna be earning my paycheck today. Yeah. All right, should we move on to TV? Yes. Uh, I only got two things I want to talk about. One, I just want to talk about the end uh, of Atlanta, which um, that's oh, how okay. long it has been since we've done one of the, the, wow. the series ended. 
uh, like probably a week and a half after we did our last movie journal um, or the season at least ended. Uh, I'm very excited to see where it goes in future seasons, uh, but I don't think that the show um, entirely lived up to um, what it started out as. I think it did the opposite of what TV shows generally do in their first season, which is start with like some good ideas, um, but maybe some lack of structure, some looseness and then build and like figure themselves out as they go. Whereas this Atlanta is like the first couple episodes were like the best episodes. And then it sort of seemed like the show would just like get distracted one week and just sort of like, Hmm. wander off and sometimes i like the shows can do that when you've only got you know 10 episodes whatever this was in, yeah. in a season i guess i i would have wanted a little bit more uh focus um now having i saw three episodes maybe even four now that okay. i think about it and given the nature of the main character having not seen the episodes that you're talking about it it actually seems like the personality of the show is is being taken from the main character and that like the show itself, it makes sense that it would lose focus. Yeah. Uh, because that's something he does, but it's weird. But it's like, I guess, I mean, the show loses focus, but weirdly it feels like the main story is still going on because okay. like Paperboy is still becoming a more successful rapper. Right. And like Ern is helping him. Like Ern is becoming more his manager, but we're not actually seeing most of it. Yeah. Except for the, there is one episode that uh, I think it's just called the club that takes a place entirely in a nightclub where, um, Paperboy has been paid to hang out in like one of the hmm. VIP things because he's like a local celebrity. And like, that's how he's making money now yeah. is just hanging out in a, in a nightclub. Um, that's a really good episode and it felt like, Oh, this is the show getting back to what it is. And then it kind of, I don't know. Hmm. I, I still really like it. Uh, week to week, like on an individual basis. I like the episodes. There's not a lot else like it on TV, but, um, I guess it, it set up something. I think an easy comparison would be Louie. Cause Louie is also a show that will just change completely week to week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or we'll have like a two or three episode run that's meant to stand alone and then completely change after that. Uh, and I think, I think Atlanta kind of um, is that model, except the first episode seems to be setting up a, more of a narrative. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it seems uh, that this is the first episode is bringing together Earn and Paperboy, and um, I can't remember his character, Keith Stanfield's uh, character. Like it's bringing them together, and by the end, like he's um, gotten Paperboy on the radio, and like he's working to become the manager. It seems like okay, this is this is going to be our through line. Mm-hmm. And so to set that up and then not follow through on it, um, is it, it makes it's, it's like it started as one show and then sort of became the Louis show. And I, I was never able to fully adjust <laughs> to it. Um, but I still liked it and I'm still looking forward to, uh, next season. Okay. What's uh, your first show? So given the nature of, uh, the political landscape at the moment, I was kind of in the mood to be, uh, uh, politically inspired for a moment. So I went back and started watching John Adams again. Um, wow. And, uh, just like while I, you know, while I was working and it's a great show in a lot of ways, in other ways, you know, it came out eight years ago. And since then we've kind of seen Tom Hooper's tricks, 
uh, more. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, after a while it's just like, okay, yeah. Dutch angles. I get it. I expect, uh, Frank Gorshin and Burgess Meredith to show up at any moment. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the performances obviously are wonderful. Stephen Delane is, uh, a treasure in that, in that show. But, um, as is David Morrison. Yeah. Everyone is, is wonderful. Uh, and, I feel, I feel bad. I never remember his, how to say his name. Jelko Ivanek. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a listener once who told us yeah. how to say it. It's something like that. Yeah. Uh, he's marvelous. He's only in a couple episodes, but boy, he, he really does the job. I like that Stephen Delane. I just said that. Huh, you but, son of a bitch. Oh, I guess. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Three sorry. Three and a half, half hours. hours. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you know what? Here's the other thing I'll say. So I, I got about four episodes in. So now we're into elections. Okay. And, you know, at the risk of uh, being artificially uh, optimistic, because it's not necessarily optimism, what I'll say is that, like, pretty much from the word go, elections were pretty shitty. (laughs) Uh, (sighs) And, like, how, like, there's the possibility of rigging some stuff uh, and, like, uh, applying pressure to people so that the right, so the, quote-unquote, the right person won. Uh, even the election of George Washington, while he himself did not seem to be that involved, like, there seemed to be people pulling strings so that he was voted in unanimously because it would look bad if he wasn't. Uh, and so, uh, you know, stuff like that. And then, like, the, the election between Adams and Jefferson was incredibly bitter, which is weird because they were friends. Yeah, and it, and it d- just destroyed their friendship for a while. And I it think was just Stephen Delane who plays Jefferson. <laughs> Damn it, David! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel bad about that. Uh, it's fine; it happens. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so, as I was watching, I just thought, like, you know, while we uh, have not had anybody quite like uh, Donald Trump before, um, the ugliness of politics is not necessarily new. Uh, it has been very, very bad before. And in fact, the moment it could go bad, it did, uh, not with even like moments of corruption in there. So like, that's an unfortunate reality, but that's, that's how things work and it's sad, but, uh, things can still work out, uh, in the end. So a little bit of optimism there and seek out John Adams. It's, it's, I don't love it as much as I used to, but it's hard to watch it and not come away being like, you know what? This country has the ability to right wrongs, uh, especially the wrongs that it does. It might take longer than it should, but it can do it. Um, you know, cause I, I took the liberty of, uh, the liberty or death of, uh, looking up the Steve character. <laughs> I looked up the character, the Jelko Ivanek plays who, you know, is personified as the guy who is most resistant to revolution. Now, in retrospect, we look at him and think, oh my gosh, get on board, man. Come on, what's the problem? But he knew what he was doing, and he's like, I just don't like the idea of bloodshed before we can afford it. Uh, You know, if it's unnecessary, then why on earth would we do it? And I looked up that guy, uh, John Dickinson, I believe his name was, and while history has not necessarily been kind to him, he was the first of all of the, uh, I believe he was the first of everybody that was part of the Continental Congress uh, and all of the founding fathers. He was the first one to free his slaves. Hmm. Like in the, like almost immediately, like in the 1770, between 75 and 85, 
Like he, he freed all of his slaves. And then, you know, George Washington followed suit and, and several other people as well, but, um, you know, did it before he had to. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, and I remember looking at that, it's like, you know, even, even people, I just, even people that history might remember poorly, like have some pretty amazing moments. Like nobody is completely irredeemable. No, but I, f- I feel like very few people are completely evil all the time and not to imply that he was even being evil, but just history remembers him poorly. Mm-hmm. But maybe we could, l- if we look at this awesome. And so I, I'm, I was trying to think in terms of like, okay, who are the people that right now we don't like, and maybe we can look at them from a different angle and find something there, something redeemable. Like, you know, a big thing right now is like Jeff Sessions and being like, oh, he's this evil racist guy because of these things he said. And it's like, okay, uh, I'll grant you that. And that is not good. But he also fought to like desegregate schools. He prosecuted clan members and like fought for like maximum penalty, which was death penalty and really fought for it. So it's just like, all right, well, I might not be in favor of the death penalty, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, you know, and just, uh, he, there were some good things and some bad things. And so like, I'll focus on the good without excusing the bad. And I think that's, I was inspired by John Adams to do that. All right. Um, the show that I'm watching now, even though it's all aired already, cause TBS aired all 10 episodes over the course of five days, uh, two episodes a day. Um, that is exactly the opposite of what Atlanta is. It is incredibly, uh, narratively propulsive, uh, is called search party. Oh yeah. And it okay. stars the aforementioned, you know, however long ago, uh, Aaliyah Shawkat. Um, she's the, she's, she's the main, uh, the main character. And the only one whose name you probably recognize There's also a guy, uh, John early plays one of her friends, uh, who's been in a few things. He was the name sounds familiar. Uh, early. I didn't even put it on the list, but I also have been watching John Glazer loves gear. Uh, I don't know if you've watched the show. No, at but all. I, I feel oh, like God. I would like it. And he was on an episode of John Glazer, Glazer loves gear as well. Um, but we'll save that for another time. It's, yeah. uh, it's crazy that show. Um, but search party is, it's one of my new favorite shows, even though I like Natalie and I watched the first two episodes and I was like, all right, there's enough here in the story. Cause it's a mystery about mm-hmm. a missing, uh, Leah Shawkat plays a character who finds out that a girl she went to college with that she hasn't seen since college six years ago has gone missing. Um, and she becomes obsessed with trying to track her down. Yeah. Um, and the show makes it pretty clear that this is, uh, about her, sort of being unhappy or adrift in where she is in her life and needing some, some purpose. Um, and, uh, but anyway, there's enough in that narrative in the first two episodes that I was like, all right, I'm going to keep watching. But I also was a little bit depressed by the first two episodes because basically everyone on the show, at least the beginning is real shitty. Like it's, it's yeah. a depressing show. Cause it's kind of like a satire of, um, I mean, it's like broad city. If the, girls on broad city and all their friends were just completely shallow uh, and awful. And so it's a, it's a picture of that. But then what I like about the show is it's gone on what I love about it actually. Cause now I'm seven of the 10 episodes in and I'm completely hooked. What I like about it is how much it has. It started with that. Like that was what it presented first. And then it said, okay, now we're going to make you care about these people. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to like soften them. We're just going to, flesh them out so now so now the the john early character we're at a point where we found out in the last episode that the story he's been telling people uh the the entire season about him being a 
cancer survivor having lymphoma in high school uh, is made up. It's something he made up and he's being found out and that's awful. But we're also now in a position of being like, Oh, I hope he does. I hope he gets away with it <laughs> because we're friends with him now at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's, there's all sorts of, all sorts of stuff uh, like that. And I, I really appreciate the show being in some ways a real throwback uh, b- being that it's like, Nancy Drew inspired, right. you know, um, but also doing some really daring, uh, interesting stuff and having some real, um, tangential weirdness and also some great, um, guest stars, uh, in the, you know, uh, all, all our main characters are in their mid twenties, but the, the, uh, you know, more adult, uh, uh, people who pop up include Parker Posey and mm. Ron Livingston and Christine Taylor, uh, and some others, um, and they're all really just good. a who's who of uh, <laughs> '90s up and comers. <laughs> Christine Taylor is actually fantastic. She, um, Leah Jacquet's character, her day job is that she's just an assistant to a wealthy uh, housewife, mm-hmm. and, and that's who Christine Taylor is. And she's nice. uh, she's fantastic. She has this whole scene. There's a whole dialogue scene between Christine Taylor and Leah Jacquet while Christine Taylor is putting together the soda stream that she bought, you know, those, those things it's like to make your own carbonated oh, yes, water yes, or whatever. Yes. And she was like, she's talking about like, it's better for the environment. And so like while they're having the conversation, she's like putting it together. Then she makes her first thing. And then like the end of the scene is she, uh, she takes a sip and she goes, Oh, I can't, I can't make my own seltzer. Sorry. Environment. And just throws it away. <laughs> <laughs> that's Uh, funny yeah uh, there's all sorts of good stuff like that um so yeah i'm i'm hooked uh on the show i've got three left uh and i will watch them uh certainly before the next time we do one of these all right finally lastly survivor this is just a plug for your other podcast no oh okay because i'll just say i'll say this real quick because i think you'll appreciate it millennials versus gen x as a theme finally paid off wait is this about the the character who came out? Yes. I read about this. Yes. Okay. Uh, he's not a character. He's a real guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He's kind of a character. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. And, and I had, I had read, uh, ahead of time that, that, uh, that he was gay. So it wasn't like a crazy surprise. Oh, okay. Um, but if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. I mean, he's like a 40 year old Boston cop and he looks like a 40 year old Boston cop uh-huh. and sounds like one too. Like you wouldn't, you would never know. Um, and then, so he's, you know, Gen X and then there's this millennial Zeke who is, you know, he's openly gay. Um, and there comes a moment when, and this, it's good strategy too, because this guy, Brett, the cop, uh, his biggest, uh, uh, like partner, uh, just got voted out. And so he kind of needs to latch on to someone. And there comes a moment when, uh, he's on a reward with, with three other people. One of them is this guy, Zeke. Two of the people leave to, I think, go to the bathroom and he goes, he's like, Hey, uh, you know, I just wanted you to know that uh, you're not the only, not the only gay guy on the Island. And, he, and he's like, what? Like, he, like <laughs> that's how much he's not. He can't imagine this guy being gay is like, even in that moment, he doesn't like, he, he thinks he's about to dish on someone else. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so then he says, he goes, yeah, you know, I am. And, and, and they have a really interesting conversation because Brett, you know, talks about like, Cause he had military, he was in the military and uh-huh. then he was a cop in Boston and he just said, you know, he goes, 
He's like, it was no problem hiding it here because that's just my natural instinct. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I was lying, you know, because that's a big thing that happens on Survivor is if you lie about yourself, eventually it just comes out because you can't keep that going, especially if it's a big part of who you are. And, um, but for him, it is a part of who he is to not be honest about this. And so, uh, so Zeke winds up, you know, in in a confessional saying like, you know, he said, I come to realize that this is where the generational difference really is made plain because guys like him didn't have the freedom to be what I am. And it's only because so many of them decided to be open about who they were eventually that it became easier for me to do it, you know, because they, he goes, I don't really risk anything he risked a lot, you know, and it's, and it's not like this is the first time he told everybody. It's just not really, it's like what, like uh, Todd glass uh-huh. when he mentioned that like, yeah, he's out now, but he can't in his mind, he just can't imagine ever like walking down the street, holding hands with a guy. Like that's just not right. who he is. And so in the same way, like Brett didn't necessarily hide it. It's just not who he, it's not what he led with. Um, he would probably lead with, I'm a cop first, or I'm from Boston or any of these other things. And so, um, so like up until that moment, this theme was a, a whiff, a total (laughs) dud up until, uh, uh, despite Jeff Probst constantly reminding us of it, uh, ad nauseum, but up and, but at this moment, it's just like, okay, now there we go. I like this. Stop talking about work ethic and talk about like struggles, you know, that each generation had to deal with. I can live with that. Um, and it was, you know, just a little five minute moment. And I tell you this, like Brett, definitely, it was a good call strategically because he was in with Zeke from that moment forward. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a really nice moment and it happened, I think at this point, like, I think, uh, I think it happened last week, maybe two weeks ago. Okay. And, uh, you talked about it on more than one. Lesson. We did. Uh, wait, uh, on, I mean, I mean, worth, worth playing, playing for, for. uh, it's no, we don't, on. we don't cover survivor on more than one lesson. <laughs> we try, in fact, they kind of morally opposed to it, but, uh, so yeah, it was a, but it's well, a good especially season. Especially all these gay guys running around. Yeah, just, <laughs> just loincloths and just slapping each other's asses. Um, cause that's what they do. Right. Especially in Boston. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it's, it's, it really is, is turning out to be a good season in general. Um, a, that's a really nice scene, but also there's this other guy who, you know, his, his, I think I mentioned that his mother had cancer while he was on the show. And then shortly after he got back, she passed away. And as of right now, like in the present of the show, he still, he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and so it's a very, it's a very sad thing. And he's, uh, but he had a very, he had a very good episode, uh, this last time where he's making like really good strategic moves. And he's talking a lot about his, about like his mom and how much she inspires him and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's a good season, a lot of good people, uh, and one, uh, a season that's very positive. And there are seasons that are incredibly negative. That's and good. This is not one of them, which is nice. Okay. Oh. 